Steve and Kevin review Ether Revolt for Vintage on episode 62 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 62 of So Many Insane Plays, our Ether Revolt Vintage set review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menedian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. been a while since we recorded and we do have a handful of announcements for this episode so starting things off nick detweiler has announced nyse number five yay that is a a welcome bit of news it's for june 24 this year you can get the details on the mana drain uh, but we've talked about the nyse uh, many times before on this show this is the fifth one and, and uh, all signs point to it being a great tournament with quite a large crowd excellent prizes and it's, just a good experience this year it's capped at 150 players so if you're interested in it pre-register yes what's unique about this is that it's a it's a high entry fee event so you pay 125 dollars but the top eight all gets power yeah. so it's it's a really amazing event really high caliber um it was. It wasn't clear after the last one whether Nick would do this again. It's a Herculean <laughs> effort. It's a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot mm-hmm. of stress. And I know Nick isn't entirely thrilled with the format. He felt, I think he felt last year that workshops just were no longer very good after the restriction of Gollum. Of course, the irony is that workshops won his event. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, it's it's just a great. So I'm gonna try and go. What about you, Kevin? I'm undecided at this point. Uh, I've been only to one of them, but I had a great time when I was there. So I really encourage anyone, if they can make the time and the trip, it's going to be a high-quality event with high-quality competition. And at the very least, we will cover the results. In terms of other tournaments, uh, locally speaking, we have a Team Series Open in Sandusky, Ohio on February 25. That's at the Pop Shop, where our last several Sandusky events have been. Yeah, it's a full the pop shop event. is a is a uh, it's a card store and just general. How would you call it? How would you describe it, Kevin? That's a toy yeah. and game store, also. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah they've <laughs> got a little bit of It's an overall entertainment store. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place. It's a good place to play, and it's also in a decent location because it's surrounded by a bunch of food and other things. So, it's uh, it's it's a good place to go and play, and that's a full proxy event. You know, Steve, I have met a handful of players lately from different parts of Michigan just through happenstance and being at shops and tournaments. And I, when I tell people I play vintage, the most common response is still, oh, I'd love to play vintage. I just can't afford the ten or $20,000, right? Yeah. To which I am frequently saying, you know that you can play vintage on a monthly basis, especially in Michigan, for basically no outlay aside from tournament entry and having a couple of cards here and there. But um, yeah, I, I still am trying to trying to sing the praises of Proxy Vintage in this area and get more and more people who say the format is interesting to them to give it a try. So yeah, It's if difficult you're... to break through that, that mental yeah. barrier around it, but don't, don't be afraid. I mean, heck, when I got back into, 
I took a brief break in the late 90s when I got back into the format. I had tons of proxy decks, and I still proxy up decks. In fact, mm-hmm. I prefer, you know this, I actually prefer playing with proxy because uh, I just don't enjoy the gradual wear and tear on my power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, even though they're double-sleeved and all of that, um, proxies are great. Yeah. <laughs> well, they have been a good thing for our local community here in the Great Lakes area, so I'm just trying to do my part to raise local awareness. And if any of you are listening to this and you bemoan not having anyone to play with, we've said it a number of times throughout the history of the show, but proxy up a couple of decks. It only takes two to go to your local FNM or whatever and, and, and just let people play the format and let them recognize that you don't have to own the cards to enjoy it. Disclaimer, the technical term, I believe, is test cards. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Play test amongst your friends. <laughs> and we'll be play testing at the pop shop on February 25. <laughs> You know, other major tournament announcements coming up are Eternal Weekend. It sneaks up on us because of the scheduling uh, idiosyncrasies of 2016 and 17. But Eternal Weekend Europe is on March 31st through April 2nd in Paris, just two short months away. Yeah, that's a great point. So for all our European listeners and anyone from the States looking to go over there, the time is short. And they recently released their playmats, which is always a fun thing. We like to talk about the playmats for the various Eternal Weekends on this show. And this year is no disappointment. The Legacy mat is Life from the Loam, and the Vintage mat is Metalworker, both of which make for excellent, excellent playmats. And if you'd like to see them, they're available to, to view on the Bizarre of Moxen website. So take a look. And we'll definitely be discussing the results of that event here pretty soon. <clears throat> Steve, what can you tell us about your article content of late? Well, we didn't have any uh, article plugs in the our preview show, which was our last podcast, but we did mention that some things would be forthcoming in our year-end review, which was episode 60. Uh, mm-hmm. And those things have now all arrived. So on January 1st, my History of Vintage 2004 uh, chapter came out, uh, and I'm working on 2005, and I'll, I'll be producing those at a much faster clip now that the Gush book is done and... Um, <laughs> You know, an owl. Then, if anyone actually wants to get the Gush book signed and they have copies of it, uh, if you um, would like to mail it to me, uh, to sign and send back to you, if pay for prepay, pay for postage uh, both ways. I'd be happy to do that. I've done that for a couple of folks already. Um, interestingly, I, I was uh, in an event a couple months ago with someone, and they were either being kind or gracious, but they they said that they thought that the Gush book was one of the best magic book they'd ever written that they had ever read because it was so comprehensive in actually teaching you how to play. Um, and someone else said it, they thought it was one of the coolest visual books they'd ever seen about magic. And when I told this to the editor, the editor told me that it's, it's going to be nothing compared to the eventual History of Vintage series, just how cool it's going to be to see all these deck lists, you know, from 1993 all the way to the present. So I'm going to try cool. and get all that done in the next year and a half so we can get the whole book done for the... Uh, Jeez, it'll be the 25th anniversary of Magic, right, in 2018. Um, That's crazy. Wow. It's unbelievable. Just two other quick plugs. Uh, free old school series article, a new one is up, uh, which was my Ice Age uh, reanimator deck, 1995, old school 95. Uh, tournament report, history of the archetype or the school, if you will. And all, all nine articles are free and available. There's a series index and then finally, I mentioned this as well, but the uh, the annual vintage checklist is available, which is a cool product for people who need help organizing their collection. 
or if you're a dealer, you're trying to figure out what cards to buy for a buy list. So it comes both with a list, an explanation of cards that have been added to the card pool, cards that have disappeared, um, as well as a spreadsheet that has a list of cards and quantities. So you can just plug in what you need. Um, it's only a couple bucks, so it's a pretty pretty useful product. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on that. So instead of updating that you know, with every set, I just do it once a year. So the 2017 list is up. Have at it. Right on. All right. Well, as you know, for all of our set reviews, it wouldn't be a set review if we didn't do our report card from our prior. So let's see how we did. Oh, with boy. So before we get into the specific results for Kaladesh, I, I do want to make a comment that our source for this data, tcdex.net, appears to maybe be a little underreported of late. Steve, you noticed one specific large-scale event at Top Deck Games that didn't make it into tcdex.net, so we've manually that added that the, number in. That was the December 17th. 34 player ugly sweater vintage open <laughs> <laughs> well and so for such a uh, comparatively large event we definitely want to include those results and especially yeah. because it had a handful of Kaladesh cards no kidding yeah but we're, we're going to be you know by way of continuous improvement we're going to continue looking for ways to improve our paper reporting uh, numbers here going forward but without further ado let's talk about these Kaladesh cards and as you may all recall we reviewed quite a few First up is Paradoxical Outcome. <laughs> this is probably the most bombastic uh, item of discussion both then and now. Steve, you predicted three. I predicted zero. The actual was 11. Nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I mean... A couple of things have happened here. Yeah. Right? Go ahead. Well, no, you can go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that in, in we spent an hour on Paradoxical Outcome, and we both played it at Vintage Championship. Um, one of the things that we I said was that if a couple people do well with it, it could really take off. So mm -hmm. I said I thought the spread was something between like three and eight. You know, um, I think I think I said that or something around like that. But uh, I took the low end of the curve. I think you might have started zero, so I had anchoring effect. <laughs> that's a fair point. <laughs> uh, well, but that's yeah. kind of what happened, though, right? I mean, Reed Duke got a lot of attention for his performance yeah. at Eternal Weekend. Even though he didn't top eight, but he did pretty well. But he was on camera enough, and Randy was very excited in talking about it. And so Paradoxical Outcome really got a lot of uh, people energized. And so, and it did pretty well, and it has it become... Was good. It was good, yeah. Yeah, and it's become a very threatening part of the metagame, and it is, I think, single-handedly responsible for a number of other changes revolving around, as I talked a lot about on the VSL, revolving around uh, Null Rod and Stony Silence. And there's no doubt when Rich Shea won the, the latest Power 9 online, he did so with his Silent Mentor deck, which is a nod toward having game against these artifact-based combo decks. Yeah, I mean, the, the metagame shift over the last month has been clear, from Paradoxical Outcome to Mentor decks going back to incorporating Null Rod effects. And I, I ran... I ran Stony Silence in my Null Rod deck, and my Null Rod deck. Stony Silence yeah. in my Mentor deck, at the um, at the uh, Asian Vintage Championship last March. So it's not a new thing, but mm -hmm. going back hard on it as a response to Paradoxical Outcome is is relatively recent. Yep. 
absolutely. So uh, we've no doubt not seen the end of Paradoxical Outcome. So it'll be, no I think, a, a threatening part of the metagame, whether or not it's dominant or not going forward. Right. Right. It seems to be kept in check, but it's it definitely a player, and I think it's a great part of the format. I mean, I think that this whole dynamic of a, a, a blue deck that can now prey on gush decks, a blue mm -hmm. draw engine that can prey on gush decks is a wonderful part of Vintage right now. Yep. And that's what Paradox Falcon presents. It keeps people honest. As the gush decks you know, um, move away from Stony Silence and Null Rod, there's, you know, it's interesting. It's not just that these gush decks run Stony Silence, but the one that Rich Shea, what he called Silence Mentor, it has an, a really unusually large number of lands in it. So mm -hmm. it kind of really eschews the whole approach of, you know, pushing down your overall mana count. I mean, he's got three Moxon, but he's got 17 lands, which is more than I think I've ever run main deck in a gush deck, ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even four-color gush decks, right? Right. So, um, you know, and they've got wastelands and everything. So there's a trade-off there, right? And the trade-off is you have fewer spells, which should make you weaker against gush mirrors uh so you know over time as the paradoxical outcome decks wax and wane they're, we're going to see gush decks that have more or less lands and more or less null rods and i think it's an, a very important and very useful metagame dynamic so yeah absolutely yeah. we'll be keeping tabs on it but moving along next up is the most numerous uh card on the list and that is fragmentize steve you predicted 14 i predicted 20 the actual was 18 so both wow. of us were, were pretty spot on wow. in our expectation there. Yeah, it was right in between, just yeah. about. You were closer, but and, 18, uh, really, 18? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. so funny. The, uh, there's no doubt that all of the things we said about Fragmentize definitely have, have come true, right? They've really pushed the Mentor decks in a, in a just a blue-white direction. Jeskai is still uh, played, of course, but the blue-white-only versions have become more popular. And Fragmentize has become a staple in those sideboards. And even the Jeskai decks are not relying on Ingotchur as much as they used to. You're seeing Jeskai builds where the only red cards are Dak and Pyroblast and one or two others, but you're seeing those Fragmentizes there as well. So fr Fragmentize is here to stay. There's no denying. Hey, Fragmentize is, I mean, we both predicted, I thought that it would be the most played card. And we also not only predicted it would see play, but on our review, we predicted how it would actually fundamentally change the metagame. That is, we anticipated the emergence of two-color mentor decks, decks that would no longer or, and boost to Esper, that decks that no longer needed red or uh, green as anti-artifact uh, tactics. And in fact, just shortly after Kaladesh, Paul Rietzel won one of the Power 9 tournaments with blue-white blue mentor, kind of proving, mm -hmm. proving our prediction there. Yep, so, exactly. So it's, it's more pronounced than, in some sense, it's, it's its role in the metagame is more significant than its prevalence in top eights. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. It is it's having a a broader footprint than just its presence, right? Yeah. So next up is Aetherflux Reservoir. Not much to say there. Zeros across the board. After that, Torrential Gear Hulk. You predicted zero. I predicted one. The actual was four. Wow. Four Torrential Gear Hulks. Where was that appearing? Yeah, well, it was very popular in Europe, basically, and we saw it uh, also, Rodrigo Tagores played it in the play-in for the VSL. Huh. We saw Torrential Gear Hulk in his Leovold, his four-color Leovold Snapcaster list. Yeah, these are just uh, different derivations of control lists. On TC decks, they list them as rogue, basically, because yeah. they're, they're effectively 
Um, they, they're kind of all over the place. One of them actually was a paradoxical outcome deck, but a much more controlling one. These with... are all de- these are all decks that have that have more than that have more than sixteen uh, tournaments with more than sixteen players, right? Because you have to have a top eight. Well, no, not necessarily. Some of these are smaller tournaments, fourteen, okay. fifteen. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we don't we don't limit for that on TC decks, and and I don't in our results. But still, Torrential Gear Hulk has has found its place. Next up is Girapur Orreri. You and I both predicted zero for this, but the actual was two. And the our results don't include uh, Magic Online here for this the purposes of this exercise. But but Rich Shea made a point to play with the Orreri in his workshop decks for a little bit after Kaladesh huh. came out. <laughs> and I think some people tried it out and eventually stepped away from it. But they were there long enough to get a couple of top eights out. It's the sort of card that might come back, but it's also the sort of card that shares a lot of mind share with cards like, let's see, what's the one with Will of the Council, the the bottled cloister kind of effect? Yeah, Which yeah, card was you, that? Uh, like Grafted Skullcap, those kinds of things. <laughs> the one that I compared it to and you laughed at me, right? <laughs> so right. the point is there's some functional overlap with a handful of cards with the Orary, and uh, we, it might see a comeback, but it, it had a moderate success. Much better than moderate success, though, was Inventor's Fair. You and I both predicted zero, and we could talk about why that is. The actual, though, was 12. 12. Wow. Uh, well, we, that, that has snowball effect, right? Montolio yeah. played it, did really yeah. well. We, the, we did a very careful analysis of that card, I felt. And one of the things that we concluded was that we thought Buried Ruin might be better, right? Yeah. Did we, I mean, Blaine told me yeah. he thought Buried Ruin was much better. At Eternal Weekend. <laughs> well, and the other thing that kept you and I from being very excited about it was how restricted the workshop decks at the moment, the, the right. Ravager Thought Not decks were with their their discrete lands. That it is, the a, lands that aren't Wastelands, Workshops, and Tombs. It took a totally different workshop approach for it to see you. Yeah, that's right. And then it made second place at uh, the North American Vintage Champs in the hands of Jacob Corey and his Null Rod Stacks deck. Right, that exactly. is one of those decks that is not as beholden to Eldrazi Temple. So if we could have predicted, home. if we could have predicted Stacks would have a comeback, then we could have anticipated this. But I don't think <laughs> either one of us would have predicted that. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But that's a lesson learned. So Inventor's Fair has become a, a, something of a staple, but we'll see how long Stacks is still a, a viable part of the metagame. It, it, it caught us off guard a little bit, and it could wax and wane. We'll see. This next one is fun. I'm really pleased to dis- to discuss the results of Sky Sovereign console flagship. <laughs> Steve, <laughs> you predicted 10. I predicted 8 with an asterisk. The actual was 13. So again, a pretty pretty spot on job there. Wow. The asterisk on mine was the called shot that there would be one copy in the top 8 at Vintage Champs. And I was right. Hiromichi Oto <laughs> had one in his stacks deck in the top 8. So... <laughs> It feels pretty good for me. I was very confident that Sky Sovereign <laughs> was a, a workshop playable card, and here Michi proved me right. Uh, but all told, our prediction was, was pretty darn close to the actual. I, I get the win on that one, though. You do. You do, but I get, I get half. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, that you ended up being more excited about it, even though I was confident it was yeah. So That is weird. Kind of the quirks of our conversations. The next one is possibly the most accurate non-zero one on the whole list. I think it is, yeah. Chandra, Torch of Defiance. You predicted two, I predicted two, the actual was two. <laughs> I have no yeah, idea what, how we pulled up, that what's off. Up with that? 
But hey, it's just one of those things, right? <laughs> we we have recognized through trial and error in this show in the past that certain kinds of planeswalkers are attractive to a certain quantity <laughs> of deck builders and players. And she is just exactly that kind of card, and, and we were right. So, you know, we can only be wrong so many times. Before we <laughs> Fair enough. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the next one is Combustible Gear Hulk. Nothing to say there. Zeros across the board. After that, Sihili Rai. Now, this is interesting. You and I both predicted zero. The actual, though, was one. R- remind me and what I this card the does. Remind our audience. Yeah, well, Sihili is, well, she's well known to standard players at this point because she's currently embroiled in another infinite combo with the the copying the cat, so to speak. Oh, oh the, um, yeah, I know what you're talking Sihili about. But Sihili's rel- most relevant ability is that she creates a copy of an artifact or creature that has haste. The thing you and I didn't really discuss or notice during our set review is the interaction with Sun Titan ah. in Oath. And that's what happened here with Sahili Rai. And I, I've seen it in a couple of other tournaments. It hasn't done very well on the whole. But if you Oath up a Sun Titan and you have Sahili Rai in your discard pile, you can bring her back into play and then make another Sun Titan. And it requires you to have two Sahilis in your graveyard, though. Because the first one doesn't go infinite, you need a second Sahili in your graveyard such that the copy Sun Titan can bring a second Sahili back and Planeswalker rule one of them. Got it. That's how that works. So, yeah, at any rate, it's not a very consistent Oath build, but it is an, a viable Oath build. And we'll see how long, it, uh, how long it does historically going forward, I mean. But for now, it does go down as a bit of a miss for us because we didn't really acknowledge that interaction during our set wow. review. <laughs> yeah. It's an obscure. <laughs> I know, it's, it's small, but we, we've got to be honest. Next up is Cumball. You predicted seven. I predicted two, and the actual was... I was really hot on yeah, that Yeah, the actual was two. Interesting. Nice job. So, yeah, I, I hit that one, but uh, you had an interesting observation about... You thought there was a 50-50 chance that that would appear at Champs. And it turns out that the metagame was just not as centered around the gush mirrors as it was around shops i think that day next is ceremonious rejection you predicted two i predicted three the actual was nine i think i predicted three because you were talking me out of it a little bit really? <laughs> I, yeah i think i think i let you depress my impression of this card a little bit but well, we both we both predicted it would see play and in fact yeah. did i mean we're not totally outside the range of play. no but it was a little bit more popular than even I thought. I mean, nine is a, that's a healthy number. Nine is, uh, let's see, it's about, it's like the fifth most played card in the set. And that's respectable. But it's clearly one of those things, not quite as high on Fragmentize, but it's one of those things that's here to stay. The next few, Metallurgic Summoning, Dovin Bond, zeros across the board there. Rashmi, Eternity's Crafter, you predicted two. I predicted zero. The actual was zero, sadly. I really do want to see someone play Rashmi, but I'll have to wait. After that, Metalwork Colossus. <laughs> you predicted one. I predicted zero, <laughs> and the actual was one. There, wow, there was, where did that show yeah, up? There was one Metalwork Colossus top eight uh, in exactly the kind of deck that, that you and I discussed, right? It was effectively ported into an existing workshop shell, but this was more of a stacks deck. And the, I think the most interesting feature of this particular list, which was played by, uh, looks like, Ruben Shikoda, the most interesting thing is the Hedron Archives times four what? in this deck. I know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I know. It's a very interesting choice. And 
no, I would have expected with Hedron Archive, I would have expected to have seen Buried Ruin to recur it, but no such thing. <laughs> well, at any rate, that was sixth place out of a 30-person tournament, though, so a respectable yeah. finish. We'll see if Metalwork Colossus has more to say in the future. And there is one uh, big mea culpa that we need to cop to on this one, and that is that we didn't review Fleet Wheel Cruiser, which is clearly the more popular vehicle in the set, and we didn't discuss it at all. The most popular, yeah. Yeah. And the actual was 15 appearances for Fleet Wheel Cruiser. So it was two more than most of our the listeners. Sky Sovereign. Yeah. Right. Can we, do we have an explanation think... for that? I mean, my excuse is that uh, <laughs> I didn't actually read all the cards this time in the set um, for the Kaladesh because I just relied on suggestions from our Twitter, Twitter base. Yeah. Well, and I personally didn't think it was actually that good of a card, but that's clearly a mistake on my part. And we just had so much going on in terms of people uh, suggesting cards via social media that this one was just missed. I would need to go back and see if one or two people suggested it and I just missed it. Or I I really don't know. But uh, whatever the case, whatever the reason, Fleet Wheel Cruiser has certainly captured people's attention and car shops has become a standard part of the lexicon for the moment. So I don't know how long its life will be vis-a-vis... Slash Panther, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but but we'll see. I think it's a better card than Slash Panther, right. don't get me wrong. But as you and I observed when we were discussing the results of Eternal Weekends and, and at the time, you and I, I think, are of the similar opinion that the more controlling workshop cards are the ones that tend to have the longer life, Long tail, longer yeah. tail, yeah. The more aggressive, and this one is hyper-aggressive, the, the more aggressive cards tend to, tend to uh, disappear over time like Slash Panther did, but we'll see, right? It's a a new day. So overall, pretty good performance by us, I think, on Kaladesh. We we called some of the hits pretty clearly. Uh, We missed a couple of the hits, though, the eventual hits in in Fleet Wheel Cruiser and Inventor's Fair. And overall, the set has panned out in terms of its impact on Vintage. In the future, just to avoid, I mean, it seems like every time I don't actually read the full set, there is something that slips through. So I will I will be more diligent about that in the future. So both of us are are screens. We're not just relying on our base or suggestions elsewhere. So um, right. apologies we didn't get Fleet Wheel Cruiser, but we'll try our best to avoid that error in the future. I mean we it correctly anticipated how good I think the um the vehicles were. We just missed that particular one. So yeah. And that's why we've called out extra number of times on Twitter in anticipation of this set review for input from our listeners. And that brings us to Ether Revolt. Can't wait. We like to start each set review with a brief discussion about mechanics. Returning mechanics in Aether Revolt are energy and vehicles and the overall artifact theme, although there isn't an artifact keyword, so to speak. Uh, well, that is to say, unless you count improvise. But anyway, <clears throat> the new mechanics in this set are improvise, which is the artifact version of Convoke, right? You can tap your non-mana producing artifacts. Well, I guess you can tap your mana producing artifacts too. You can tap any artifact to reduce the cost of a spell that is the generic part of a cost of a spell with Improvise. There's also Revolt, which is the 
the mechanic on a cards like Fatal Push, whereby you get an increased effect if a permanent has gone to the graveyard from play. Your a permanent you control has gone to the graveyard from play this turn. And it's not a keyword mechanic or even a, a specific set of... Uh, uh, what's the word I can never remember? Yeah, I'll forget it. But the expertise cards, there's a cycle of five, one for each color and each uh, legendary individual in the set. The expertise cards are a bit of a sub-theme here, whereby you can get a, a main effect for a spell, but then put a cheaper spell onto the stack. Reminiscent of Cascade, but the cheaper spell has to come out of your hand. So those are an interesting and powerful cycle. But let's get into the specifics. And we did reach out to Twitter and get some good feedback from all of you, so thank you for that. And of course, we had, if you're fans of the show, you know, we had our very first preview card which is pretty yes, exciting. Yes. And it so, introduces <laughs> it introduces a bit of a trick for our set review well, here, right? Because I think we, should we didn't just, do our predictions of quantity. That's true, we didn't, but I think we should just ask folks to go back and incorporate our analysis of Hope of Girapur, which we were very jazzed about. The reaction was surprisingly mixed, um, yeah. in some cases even pessimistic. I we we should have done a, a prediction at the time. So why don't we just go ahead and, and make our predictions now, Kevin? And, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's fair to just ask our audience if you want to hear a really protracted discussion about a, Hope of Gerper, we've got a whole episode for it. It's about an hour, so yeah. it's worth it. I mean, I, well, I think what we sketched out just this, you know, I, I actually want people to go back and listen to it, but we sketched out, I think, yeah. every strategic place where we thought it would see play, multifunctionality, um, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't say it would see more play here or more play there, but I think what we try to do is canvas all the possibilities. Yeah, and it's deep. It's the deep. The card has deep implications. And we should say, Steve, I know you wanted to make it clear up front with all of our predictions this time that we're so late in our set review this time, uncharacteristically late, that we actually have people out in the wild playing with Kaladesh, or, sorry, Ether Revolt cards already because the set just was released a few days ago. I don't think that's going to so, substantially in- influence my predictions because it's just, just it's, <laughs> I mean, just it's, they've just come online in the last yeah. day or so. So no, you're right. But if, if either of us were ever going to say, like, for instance, for example, zero on Hope of Giraper, yeah. <laughs> we, we know that's not correct That's anymore. true. <laughs> but there's no chances of that. So well, never mind that. So, so um, when is the next set review in May? Yeah. May? I'm, I'm definitely taking a non-zero number. I, mean, I assume. Oh, yes. You, uh, but I mean a substantial non-zero number, not a tiny one. So. Yeah, we talked about so many homes, but I must say that I have since done a little bit of testing and a little bit of play with the card, and I believe that the the number of appearances, that is the top eight appearances, that means success for this card, yeah. is going to be powerfully influenced by the current state of the metagame. Definitely. And there are two observations I have that really diminish the card's playability right now. One of them is Null Rod, and the other one is Null Rod slash Stony Silence. And the other one is Dak Faden. Unfortunately, this card matches up quite poorly with Dak Faden in a deck that is ever going to consider passing the turn with it in play. It's a good. And so, unfortunately, you know, you and I discussed a lot of homes. Some of the homes are decks where you're not going to go off on turn two. One of the fun things to do with this card is to play it and then attack with it. And then look at the you know the bead of sweat run down your opponent's <laughs> forehead as to whether or not you're about to sacrifice it, which is you know I'm I'm being 
and being glib but the point is is that you don't always sacrifice the hope after its first activation or, or combat damage leaving it in play though really puts it at the the peril of Mercy. null rod and yeah. Dak faden which are very common in today's metagame so that's a bit of a weakness of the card at the moment now, those things could change I think that I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead and go first this time, and I think that this card is going to be slow out of the gate. Up. Like paradox, I don't think it's going to be as yeah. explosive. Yeah, I don't think it's even going to be as explosive as paradoxical outcome, right? Because well, we don't have a major vintage event like champs May. to be a, a coming out yeah. party right before May. Well, I have I have a figure in mind. I have a, a small range in mind, but I'll let you go first. That, yeah, then let me go first and not be colored by yours. I'm going to say. I'm going to say six. Well, my range was eight, nine. So. All right, then. Yeah. I'll just say eight. It's fine. Okay. I'm feeling okay about that, but uh, I think Hope has a lot of long-term, and I mean long-term oh. implications. And so it, it could ebb and flow. I, yeah. I also think, you know, and I'm actually, I'm actually writing a free article about, strategy article about the state of vintage. But one, just to, one thing that has occurred to me is that there's different speed cycles in vintage right now. The paper cycle, an online cycle, and then there's the people who engage in the day-to-day -day battles in the dailies. You know, I think that the there's different. I think the the um, trend, the surge towards null rod could subside very quickly. And in the, and if it creates a space for paradox outcome decks, this it'll surge back up. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go back to null rod. I think we are on the verge of a big at this moment, a big workshop and Eldrazi surge. Which is another way to kind of check, a uh, check the paradoxical outcome decks. So I don't know. I, I think that um, hope. I think that hope of Girapur, uh I think it's going to be better off than the than the pessimists, the naysayers think. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, in other words, I think that, I think there's a possibility that it could be even bigger because we just we just don't know what's going to happen with you know what the prevalence of null rod is going to be in March. There's no way you can predict it right, right. now or in April. Right. You know. Well, our next card, I think, is going to have some influence on that. Because I'm talking about one walking <laughs> ballista. Yes. This one is XX, <laughs> Artifact Creature Construct. Walking ballista enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it. Four colon, put a plus one plus one counter on walking ballista. Remove a plus one plus one counter from walking ballista, colon. It deals one damage to target creature or player. And it's zero, zero. So I want you to imagine that Hangerback Walker and Triskelion had a night of passion, and, <laughs> and this was the result. Clearly, Walking Ballista is a scalable, small, sometimes smaller, occasionally larger uh, Triskelion, which doesn't have an inherent one power and toughness. But it also has the ability to add counters after it's in play, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, yes. And I already know for a fact that a number of people are really excited about this card. Yeah. It integrates... I mean, I don't think we need to, to do well. <laughs> a lot of the normal diligence here because it's a workshop card, but also because the mana cost is yeah. scalable, so we can immediately start talking yeah. about the scalability. But I just, I just personally feel that it integrates very well with a lot of things that many workshop archetypes are trying to do right now. It's, it's interesting to juxtapose Hope of Girapur and Walking Ballista because... If you were just to look at them in a vacuum and not really know, let's say you were someone who is a vintage novice 
and you don't play vintage and you're just learning the format, if you were to look at these cards from the outside in, you might say, wow, this Hope of Giraport is unbelievable in vintage. It's efficient, allows me to combo out. Walking Ballista is a card that looks trivial in vintage. Like, why do I want a 2-2, you know, thing that can throw off damage? That's something that would be good in, like, standard or, or limited. Why would that be good in vintage? Right. The irony is that the, 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 if, from a metagame lens, the position is actually flipped. Walking Ballista is actually ridiculous in the current vintage metagame. Right. You, it's hard to imagine how to design a card that's better suited for this metagame. And Hope of Girapur, unfortunately, just in this current metagame moment, is probably under a little bit underwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, so this card, I think, is a game changer in the sense that, like, perhaps even more so than Fragmentize. So Fragmentize is a card that shifts the color configurations and the design possibilities in the format. Walking Ballista is a card that enters a fierce battle between the two upper-tier archetypes in the format, which is the Thorn decks and the Gush decks. It's like, it's like in the Cold War, you know, if the U.S. or USSR had found a kind of incredible new weapon, right, that just breaks through, and that's kind of what this is in the Cold War and vintage right now between Gush and Thorndex. <laughs> this is the new exciting weapon, and it is a haymaker of haymakers. I mean, this card comes in; it is perfectly designed to attack mentor-based strategy, just perfect. And uh, let's just start there. I'll just go off, right? So first Please. of all, I think this card is a virtual presumptive conclusion, uh, in- inclusion rather, a, v- a virtual presumptive inclusion in any deck that has Ancient Tomb in it right now, because those Ancient Tomb decks tend to be the Thor- the Eldrazi decks, the White Eldrazi, the Colorless Eldrazi, the Tribal Eldrazi, and the Workshop Eldrazi, and then there's the Workshop decks. The fact that this card can, you know, you go Moxland, and then turn to an Ancient Tomb, you can bring this down for two, means you can immediately not only pick off a Mentor through a Thorn of Amethyst or a Thalia, but then, much like Eldrazi Displacer, with that same four mana, next turn you can pick off Monk tokens at one at a time. It's, it's very similar to um, Eldrazi Displacer in that sense, except it can be played off a Workshop. So... Um, you know, with just four mana instead of three mana to blink something, you pay four mana to take out a monk, which is often what you blink anyway. Um, so this card, I think it's just it's perfectly designed for attacking mentor decks, and I would say token strategies. Except young pyromancer has kind of disappeared from the metagame, right? I mean, there aren't many pyromancer decks out there. Um, but it, for example, if you were playing against Delver, just play it on turn one for two, pop off the Delver, right? Or you could play it with Workshop and a Mox, pop off the Delver, and still have a 1-1, <laughs> right? Um, and again, the fact that this can be played through Thalia and Thorn is so important. And I'd like to add that that 1-1 still has a lot of incremental value. It can grow exactly. in the future. It can gain other kinds of counters. It's just, it interacts with hang, uh, Hangerback and, um, not Hangerback, um, Ravager still. It's yeah, with ra- it's huge with yeah, Ravager. It, it's just it you can put do all, all the Ravager tokens. Yeah, I could do all the late game stuff that Trike can do, and it has still had a very powerful early game impact, as you put it. Yeah, I mean, it's got a kind of like I said, a blink ability. Uh, it's very similar to Displacer, with, with except it's four mana. The um and, and the, the other difference is that whereas Displacer can only blink out a permanent on the battlefield, this actually can you can throw it at your opponent's head or at a Planeswalker. So it's even better in that respect. Like your opponent has a Dak or a um, a Flip Jace Friends Prodigy or whatever. You can just 
load it, load up on this thing and throw it all at the the planeswalker. Uh, uh, this card is a decisive weapon in the battle against gush decks, and I think that it's gonna. I, I don't know how significant. I think it's very significant. Um, and the the, the funny part is that uh, Null Rod and Stony Silence don't really stop this card because you can still either throw off the tokens for direct damage in response, or you can simply just have a large creature that you can attack with. So as the game goes on, like in the late game with workshops, you can just make like a 6-6 walking ballista with an academy and a couple of shops, right, Kevin? Oh yeah, absolutely. The fact that it scales up above Trike means that you have just this additional layer of strategy against Null Rod when and if you need it. Yeah, and, and because you can continue to add power to it you don't have to worry about playing it prematurely so you don't have to like fret over you don't have to fret over saying well should i really play this for four mana or should i wait until i can get to eight right no you don't have to actually worry about that at all um i I don't think there's any question this is a huge card for shops i also think it's really good in white eldrazi and i also think it's going to be you know in other eldrazi decks the specific question, so it's really easy to figure out how you fit this in a White Eldrazi deck. You just jam it in there and put it in over some of the marginal cards. I think the far more interesting card question about this card is how you fit it into shops and how you redesign the shops deck around it. I think you're right that it's really, really good with, um, with Arcbound Ravager. But the whole constellation of cards that we're now seeing in workshop decks is so different than what we've seen. I mean, the last six months, we're seeing cards like like uh, Fa- uh, Steel Overseer and um, what what's the uh, the artifact creature that makes other artifacts cost less? Oh yeah, the the Foundry Inspector. Foundry Inspector. These are two cards. That, these are cards we have not seen really. Oh, you wouldn't have anticipated we'd be seeing a lot of play in workshop decks, but they're appearing out of nowhere. And Steel Overseer is really good with this card. So there's a lot of potential. I mean, because it, that's the one that adds a plus one plus tokens to all your creatures, right? right? Yeah. I mean, obviously that's very good with Walking Ballista. That means that, you know, with that in mana, you can continually pump this multiple multiple uh, points of damage per turn. And, it, and the damage, critically important, you know, is both power on him and direct damage, like Trike. I, I think that that this is an interesting card that so this card actually brings into focus a principle that I talked about for design and vintage, which is designing cards that are situationally better and situationally worse than existing playables. The problem is that I think that this is so much better than Trike. I don't I don't really know how much Trike is going to be around anymore. I think you know it's still playable, but this card is I mean obviously for six mana you get a better deal out of Trike, but you can't. There's so many games where you have like let's say exactly six mana but there's a sphere in play that you know a sphere of resistance or something like that where you're just like one mana away from being able to play the trike i think that this card is a huge improvement over trike frankly and i don't think it's particularly close you know i think the um you're mostly right i i can't shake the notion that people are going to start right or wrong i think people are going to start with a mix so, some people are going to start with a mix, like two of these and two trikes or something like that, to hedge a little bit. <laughs> That's, but, but I have that would just be wrong. I have a feeling, uh, <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling that in practice this card is going to win out. Uh, I I know it's going to be adopted quickly, but as with many vintage cards, it might not be adopted fully up front. Yeah, but it'll have a it'll you know, be, have a faster time to market than other cards we've discussed, like <laughs> Paradoxical Outcome and, and many in the past. 
That's true. Uh, I mean, we've already seen just the last weekend, Andy Probasco won a, a, a mid-sized tournament with this card. I don't have his exact deck list, but yeah. And I think he, I don't think he ran any trikes playing a shop deck, I believe. And I should, and, and I should note that he uh, online, even though Ether Revolt wasn't out, he's been playing with animation module. I don't know if you were familiar with that card. Remind Steve. me what that this is. is a one mana artifact from Kaladesh where it it's part of the module cycle. Um, but whenever you put a plus one plus one counter on a creature you control, you can pay one mana and make a servo. Wow. So it synergizes powerfully with Ravager. well with Ravager yeah. and Hangerback Walker also, and it will synergize with this in the future as well. <laughs> Well, well, Andy's been a fan of uh, Tiny Robots in the past. That sounds like a Tiny Robots card to me. Yes, definitely, <laughs> definitely. It lets you go wide, and then, as you already described, it works very well with Steel Overseer. So we might be seeing the Ballista and Animation Module in combination with Overseer, in addition to other other types of homes. I, th- I don't think there's any question that everyone understands that the Monastery Mentor is the defining creature in this format. Yeah. And there is not a better card in this format for attacking Monastery Mentor than Walking Ballista. It is a single card. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, this card can not only kill the Mentor, it can kill all the tokens, <laughs> which not even Swords to Plowshares can do. <laughs> now, Swords to Plowshares might actually be better at dealing with Mentors. But from my perspective, in terms of the strategic uh, competition right. between archetypes, this is the best tool. Like, obviously, in the Mentor Mirror, you're going to be using Plow. Uh, I I mean, in some sense, you could say, after the Vintage Championships, you and I did our recap show, I said, I feel like we're living in a, a Sean O'Brien school of vintage world. <laughs> Meaning that even though Mentor decks did really, you know, have been doing really well all year, the there were five Thorn decks in the Vintage Championships top eight. Yeah. Right. I've said that a million times. Right. I felt like I left that tournament just feeling we are living in a Sean O'Brien world where people are playing Shops and Eldrazi. And then after Vintage Champs, we saw this kind of online surge of, of Mentor again. And people were started complaining at the beginning of the year that maybe Gush or, or Gitaxian Probe or something needs to be restricted. I can't help but feel that this both solves a problem but introduces a problem in the sense that <laughs> this 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 definitely helps keep mentor decks in check, but it's such a tricky balance that but I think it just is such a huge boost to those thorn strategies that people are gonna start complaining about those again. So we're gonna be caught in this <laughs> this crazy world. The the one thing I love about this card, in terms of that specific debate, is that this card is not very good against paradoxical outcome so mm. like trike it's weak against that so but this is better i than like trike. that it's right exactly i i agree yeah. i agree but i still don't think it's very good against paradoxical no. outcome decks no. it's pretty useless <laughs> so I, I love the fact that it's a tailored answer and also frankly is not very good trike is probably better against the eldrazi mirror or workshop mirror because coming into play for six mana at a four four is actually a better deal when you're playing a Thought Not Seer mirror match. Yeah, that's true. So, 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 getting back to you know what I was trying to say is, I think the critical question is how do you build a workshop deck, the most effective, efficient, best overall package with this card? And I don't know the answer to that. I put a little bit of thought into it, but it's far from clear. It's going to be some time. It could be a Steel Overseer package. It could be something else entirely. I, I just don't know. I have no doubt this is going to go into White Eldrazi, but it's possible that the workshops just gain so much more. Yeah. Because, again, because of their capacity to scale this faster. 
with Mishra's workshop. Definitely. So are we going to see a huge surge in shops <laughs> because of this card? <laughs> well, it Kevin? further highlights the tension with Nullrod, though, doesn't it? It does. Because it's pretty clear that some people are just going to start by replacing trikes with these, right? And that doesn't make you any more or less, um, you know, hurt by Nullrod because you're taking two cards that are both similarly impacted. But at the same time, that's, boy, it's it's really debatable about, depends on the matchup and, and which of these you would have or have, assuming there's a null rod in play, right? Against Tribal yeah. Eldrazi, do you want to have to pay six for your trike to get a 4-4, four, four, or would you rather be able to pay two for <laughs> to get a 1-1 one, one, to get on the board? That's an in- I mean, Yeah, that's an interesting I, question. I genuinely don't know. Against Stacks, for example, I'd rather <laughs> have a cheap card than an expensive one. So I think you're right that this card is going to become an immediate staple, but exactly how you build that deck is there's just a lot of options. I think my instincts tell me that you can afford to go lower to the ground just because of the profitable interaction with this and Ravager, and you can get to that shotgun kind of approach more reliably fast than you can with Trike, right? I I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I, predict, I, I also can't, I predict a number yeah. of games that would be concluded by just playing this on two mana. Whereas, whereas you <laughs> might have had to wait another just turn. Just say concluded with enough mana, yeah. No, I, I mean, yeah. I just mean, you know, it's well, games frequently end when you have Ravager that has hit your opponent for a little bit, and then you play a Trike, because that's on turns three, four, five, something like that, depending, and you've done a little bit of damage. But I can predict games where you wouldn't be able to afford a trike, where this will still seal the deal. And that's that's a pretty big deal. That's true. That's a pretty big you know, improvement. I want to walk back a little bit something I said. I I, I think that there's a debate as to, to whether this will be better in Eldrazi, like White Eldrazi or Shops. And one of the things that I think I implied was that this might just be better in Shops. I think it might be better... It, it might not be, because... Although shops can play this for a bigger amount faster, the Eldrazi decks not non-reliance on Mishra's Workshop means that this has a better long has a better long game with this card. True. So the capacity to load it up over time will be will be more effective, I think, in the the White Eldrazi decks. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out, and this is not particularly relevant for shops, but it is an and just a I don't know maybe it's a throwaway observation, which is that Eldrazi Displacer is in well, Eldrazi Displacer and Triskelion are never used together, to my knowledge. But if you were to use them together, blinking out a trike is actually very effective because it comes back with uh, three counters on it. So this is an old-school magic thing where if you put Tano's, put a Triskelion into a Tano's coffin and it comes back out, it not only comes back with all the tokens it had on it originally, but three additional ones. <laughs> so you can get really large trikes with Tano's coffin. But with, um, with uh, Eldrazi Displacer... If you blink this out, it'll come back and die. So, so you don't pro- you can't profitably use Eldrazi Displacer to grow yeah. a Ballista. It, but but you can use it the converse. You can use an Eldrazi Displacer to blink out your opponent's Ballista. Yeah, quite effectively. Yeah, assuming that it does not kill the Displacer in response immediately. Yeah. <laughs> of course, but but you could yeah. yeah. Um, I would also like to point out that this is really good against Dredge. Because you could just, you oh, could just yeah. play it for zero. for zero. The, the old uh, endless one trick. But it's even better because with an endless one, you sometimes, sometimes had some incentive to not play an endless one because you're giving up the opportunity to play it for zero. <laughs> this, you don't have to make that choice. You don't have to. Yeah, right. you play it right. whenever you want. You can you actually want. play it. Yeah. 
yeah throw the tokens off and the the bridges go right so it's just Uh, it's just that much more ammunition against dredge in that sense the yeah i think that's a great point i think i think that the i i do think that one of the other so we talked about it potentially replacing or pushing out trike i also think it's going to probably have a negative effect on the prevalence of hangerback walker yeah which was two years ago one of the biggest workshop innovations in the format I just think that this competes for a similar space, deck space. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of... Now, Hangerback obviously grows for a single mana, so it has an advantage there. But Hangerback's... Well, shoot. But Hangerback is better when there's a Null Rod in play also. (laughs) So that's tricky, right? Because they both come down for exactly the same size, no matter what. You would rather play a Hangerback Walker when there's Null Rod in play. the the fundamental problem is you want a card that's better against Mentor, yeah. and I don't think there's any question that Ballista is. Yeah, but what I, what I find myself wondering is, are these decks just going to have both? Then are they going to find cuts elsewhere and play Ballistas and Walkers yeah. plus their Ravagers? I, I don't know. They're both so I don't good. know what you cut. I mean, so if you assume that it has all the sphere effects and Tangle Wire, that you've already eaten up almost twenty artifacts, right? I mean, yeah. four Thorn, four Sphere, four Tangle Wire. Yeah. Um, uh, Chalice, Trinisphere, uh, and Lodestone Golem. How many cards is that? Well, that's. Yeah, I just named, that's I, about I sixty. That's fifteen. That's fifteen. My, I think so another one, way. One fourth of your, one fourth of your deck is already accounted for. Though, if you're if you're if you're running four of this and four Arcbound Ravager, and you have I don't know twenty eight man twenty nine mana sources, then, you know, you don't really have a lot of space to fit things around this, right? No, so. but there are pretty clear places where they would come from in current lists, right? We have Fleet Wheel Cruiser, we have Thought Not Seer, we have Triskelion. These are the points that are obviously uh, to cut from, and you're, it's well, pretty obvious that you don't cut lock yeah. pieces except for you know shave one or one or two maybe. But I, well, if you're playing one of these workshop decks, are you going to be playing Thought Not Seer as well? Which is to, if you don't, then you get a lot more space. Yeah. But but Montolia was always just about always run Thought Knots here. That's true. That's true. I think Thought Knots here hasn't gotten any worse lately. It's still a fantastic card. No, no, not at all. But this card is also really really good. So I, it we're to start with losing In fact, it might get better trikes. because you can plug out, pull out Stony Silence and Null Rod at least potentially. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Well, at any rate. But maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe you do. Maybe that's actually the cut. Maybe that's the cut. Because then you can run like a few hangerbacks. You know, you've got four arcbound. Uh, you know, the ballista, and maybe you go. I don't know, steel overseer. Right. Is the complement. Maybe that's the route you go. Well, what's or or or, or the, the the fleet wheel cruiser to your point. What's clear is that we have options, right? <laughs> oh, and these decks all run for revoker as well. Right. Just to be clear, so that's part of the yeah. If you add the revoker to all the other lock parts, you've already got 19 lock parts right there. It's incredible between hangerback and ravager and this now, how low to the ground these decks can be while still having scalability for the end game. Yeah. I mean, you could have it's you could remarkable. play every one of those creatures for two mana and still overwhelm. And still your be opponent. using and still be using all of your mana every turn. Right. Right, very efficiently. That's a really good point. Really interesting. Well, I think the best method is one we've used many times before, and that is to look at the recent performance for all these comparative cards. Yeah, like look up how many trikes were there in the last. Yeah, that would be. The... I pulled up trike and I pulled up ravager, and both had similar results as you would expect. 
How many? There were about twenty to twenty-five of each. That's exactly. In the last that's exactly what I was going to predict. Is that range? Yeah. So I don't think Ballista is going to take off at a one-for-one one match for all of those, but it's going to be close. I, I think. I, I'm going. My floor on Ballista for me is twenty. Wow. That's the floor. Wow, twenty yeah. on the floor. Interesting. Well, well, you well you said fragmentized twenty, right? So no, t- fragmentized was eighteen. Fragmentized was eighteen. You you. And, yeah, I, and I Fleet think, Wheel I, Cruiser was I fifteen. Think, yeah, I'm the floor on this card is twenty because I think it's not I think it's going to appear in all the places we said and maybe a few others. I think basically any deck with Ancient Tomb can use this. Yeah, that's I think this is just more far more ubiquitous than Trike or Ravager. This is more like a Phyrexian Revoker, I think. That's a good point. It's more of that nature. It it will appear in places that Fleet Wheel Cruiser did not. You're right about that. And and, and Trike cannot. <laughs> and Trike yeah, yeah. That's true. Well, you you know what you've you've talked me up a little bit, so I think that I think you're right. I think twenty is is the floor here. I'm just going to go with twenty myself. Do you want to go with more than that? How many revokers have there been in the last period? If you can look that up, it looks like revoker is slightly more popular. I'm How I'm many? eyeballing this, but it looks like thirty. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think we're looking at the twenty-five to thirty range. Yeah, I'm just going to go twenty-five. Okay, I think it's reasonable. When you get up to numbers that high, I mean, the margin of error is is pretty high too. So, yeah, I mean, this is Snapcaster Mage range, in my opinion. Yes, that's how big this card is. This is like the artifact Snapcaster Mage, really. Wow. <laughs> that's a bold statement, but I think I think results are going to bear out that you're correct. But we need to move on. We don't have as many cards as we do Kaladesh, but we still have quite a few. Next up is one Crackdown Construct for four artifact creature construct. Whenever you activate an ability of an artifact or creature that isn't a mana ability, Crackdown Construct gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. It is two, two. Is there a way to go infinite on this? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, any card that has a... Metal worker. <laughs> well, any card that has a zero activation. So in standard right now... There's... Sorry, I don't mean the card metal worker. I mean metal worker combo. Yeah, I know. You know, like you go you, infinite. But you don't with... need extra cards yeah. with metal worker combo. You just play your cards anyway. That's true. But yeah. in standard, there's currently a combo with uh, Wandering Fumarole, which is the blue-red creature <laughs> land that has a zero colon activation to switch its power and toughness. So you can do that in an unbonded number of times and make this arbitrarily large. And you can do similar things with a number of cards in the vintage card pool, from Shuko to Chronotog to some super obscure things, uh, none of which are amazing cards in and of themselves, of course. But I don't bring this up because of the infinite possibilities. I bring it up because of the large, finite possibilities that exist in all of the, ex- the existing workshop creatures that we've already discussed. Because this creature gets plus one, plus one for every activation of Arcbound Ravager, every activation of Hangerback Walker, every activation of Walking Ballista. It gets plus one, plus one. And so it's, it's highly synergistic with the other activated abilities that are already in place. And I, I think because Walking Ballista is so good that we don't have need for a otherwise large threatening creature necessarily beyond it. <laughs> the fact that this is in the same set with the Ballista, I think, really diminishes its interest. But I think it's still a relevant card, and it interacts very quickly and powerfully with all the other pieces that are currently in place. <laughs> so ultimately, I think I would say... I'm not sure that this is going to get enough attention because we already have so many nice tools. Exactly. But if someone plays there, this against you, you had better watch out. <laughs> for, for I mean, the only place this would see play is a workshop deck. And workshop 
right now, I have such a crowded landscape. I don't want to write this off because we've seen some really weird cards appearing in workshop decks of late, but I think this is probably a bit too conditional. So it's like, what, you're going to play this for 2-2 and then activate a trike and then it becomes a 3-3 only until end of turn? <laughs> I, I'm not convinced. Well, in the case of trike, this becomes a 5-5. Five five. Well, I'm just saying if you activate the trike once, oh, but yeah. yes, and it's only till end of turn, and then you've lost your trike. Yeah, I, I know. So the, the idea is the game doesn't go any longer <laughs> than that one activation, right? That's that's how this card would function. Yeah, this effectively doubles the I, damage. I just don't think that's what I don't think that's what Workshop's looking for. Well, this doubles the damage from Ravager yeah. counters, right? That's true. In a similar way to trike, similar but not as good. This even so what would, this even gets plus one can, plus one when you when you tap a Mishra's factory to pump itself <laughs> right or if you activate a displacer or something yeah. I, I hear you um I, I i just don't see it there's just there are a lot of interactions here i don't want to sleep on this one i have a feeling that some people will I mean, try would you it, play would you play a would you play a four mana we don't play juggernaut right juggernaut is a four mana five 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 three yeah and that card doesn't really see play true so you'd have to get bigger than five for this to even be a consideration I just don't see that being reliable enough. I'm going to go zero. I'm already con convinced. Well, I think based upon my comparison coming out in the same set with, uh, with Walking Ballista is really the death knell for this card's play. <laughs> this might be a vintage playable card similar to Metalwork Colossus. Not that they're functionally the same, but no. in the same vein. I don't agree with that. I, unless you want to make it really broad and say, uh, the the complete list of cards that you would ever consider playing in a workshop deck, fine. But I think I think the the Colossus is much more interesting. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. Well, I'm gonna go with zero as well, but we'll see. Next up, we have Baral, or Barrel. I am not sure. Chief of Compliance, one U, legendary creature, human wizard. Instant and sorcery spells you cast cost generic one generic less to play. Whenever a spell or ability you control counters a spell, you may draw a card. If you do, discard a card. 1-3. Now, I mentioned this card specifically on VSL when Randy asked me about Aether Revolt because I think this card has a one particular very interesting uh, namesake going for itself, and that is this is the first two-mana non-symmetrical cost reducer that applies to more than one color of spells. <laughs> Someone's, didn't someone say Electromancer or something like that? It's true that Electromancer also fits that bill, but it's two colors. So my long-winded yeah. first of thing also <laughs> includes... caveat. Yeah, being, also includes being one color only. So Barrel introduces some interesting play patterns that I'd just like to give you a scenario. You're playing two-color Mentor. You're playing against a Thorn deck. Your opponent plays Ancient Tomb Thorn Go, and you play... Uh, land, tap your land, mox, because that's a frequent play pattern, right? At that point, you've got one mana up. You could still force of will on their turn if you need to. On the next turn, though, things get really interesting because if you can, if, if they play a, a creature or something and, and you're not able to interact with it necessarily, but if you play barrel and a, and a second land into their thorn and whatever other permanent they played, you have one mana. That one mana can now cast a Fragmentize through their Thorn, and if you tap out, you can still Force of Will through their Thorn. Let me think about that for a second. Repeat that one more time. So you on your second turn, they have a Thorn and a Creature. Yep. 
you can pay two mana for barrel because it's a creature it only costs two and play a land play yep. a tundra you can now yep. fragmentize through their thorn and still force of will through their thorn that same turn even though you're tapped out interesting because it caught yeah that's a good point i was envisioning the creature being thalia but in, in case a non-thalia creature uh, yes. well i mean you can use the same example <laughs> yeah. if it's thalia you can plow thalia it's like and still yeah force of that will reminds also. me of, that reminds me of the old sapphire medallion decreasing the cost of both the intuition and the ak yeah so <laughs> yeah so no, that's a good point i think barrel it, it, i mean it's not an amazing doesn't make a new deck possible it's not amazing new ground right it's just nice incremental value given that thorn is so popular these days yeah so and what do you what do you think of what do you think of the cycling ability though how much value do you put on that i i actually like that more than i think people might assume because every blue deck these days is forced to play with situational cards so yeah it's really beneficial That's to true. if you get that coveted force of will through the thorn on turn two action it's also really super beneficial to be able to cycle away cycle away a mental misstep or a fluster storm or a mind break trap that you have in game one against workshops for example or conversely cycle away uh, swords to plowshares against paradoxical storm for example so i think it's actually quite nice i don't think you need to strategize around it i don't think you need to play flashback cards like ancient grudge to make it good i just think that blue decks currently are already built to take advantage of some inherent cycling <laughs> so or looting i should say looting yeah i mean i'm envisioning like you're playing a gush deck you get into a counter war but you have additional a little bit of superfluous land and you could just, you know, lose the one misstep on a misstep. Your misstep's countered. This triggers. You discard additional land. Hopefully draw another misstep or something, you know, to, that's a, to get back to the... That's resource. a really good point. And it interacts... So it interacts very powerfully well with cards like Gush. So you can loot away extra lands. Also interacts very well with Delve. And it interacts very well with Sensei's Divining Top. Because you can dig a little deeper, even in the midst of a counter war, as you put it. I just think... That's nice incremental value. So I don't think that this card immediately takes the place of anything in current mentor lists, though. That's really the trick. This isn't better than Jace Frint's Prodigy, I don't believe, even though they could ultimately do some similar work as it pertains to looting. But that Jace's upside as Telepath Unbound is far higher than Barrel's. <laughs> but I can't shake the notion... Do you think it's better to reduce the cost of your spells post-sideboard against shops, or is it better to just bring in more land? I mean, what if you that had two or really three... interesting question. If you had two or three of these in your yeah. sideboard, and your plan was to bring so, them in against Thorn decks, would you be better off just having three islands in your sideboard? I really don't you know. know. It's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. I've, I've really struggled with this, and again, I've been kind of surprised to see this move towards high land gush decks. Not only are the Gush decks now high land, but they're, they're running more lands than we ever saw in Big Blue decks. I mean, Big Blue decks ran 15, 16. Gush decks traditionally around 14, and now these decks are running 17. Granted, they may have like two Wasteland effects, a strip and a Wasteland or something, but it's still a lot. And I've always felt that you, you can have too many lands in a Gush deck, even if you're playing against a Workshop deck. But I think that's been proven wrong empirically. I think the data demonstrates that my perception of that is wrong despite the fact that I've been in so many situations against workshop decks where I flooded with a gush deck after sideboarding in a land, going up to, say, 16, but not having the answer to their creature or artifact. I need. So 
you I think the answer is actually situational. I think that um, in some if you have a critical mass of lands, like at least two in play, maybe three, then the additional land has very little value. If you if you I, I let's say has much less value, whereas and you'd rather have a cost reducer. But if you have very little, you know, very little land, like just one, then you'd rather have the second land than the cost reducer. So I think it's situational. And um, I have to say, against all these thorn decks, the fact that this can come down so efficiently is very attractive. I think that's actually one of the reasons that Jason's Rin's Prodigy is secretly or quietly, maybe not so secretly, but quietly, so darn good right now. Yeah, I would agree. Is because it because it comes down against these thorn decks so quickly, and then actually can then you know replay plows. I think that this card is kind of like that. It feels a little bit like that. It's nice. It's nice. I think that, boy, the interaction with Delve is also pretty attractive. But in order for that to happen, you, you, it means you have countered multiple, not multiple, at least one, I should say, spells, right? So if you truly wanted to bring this in against workshops, for example, I think you're incentivized to bring in Steel Sabotage. You're incentivized to be countering more spells also. But, I mean, so I, I, I positioned that like it was a bad thing. But Beryl makes Steel Sabotage better with both of his abilities. Because one of the challenges <laughs> with Steel Sabotage is it's not free. <laughs> okay, right? Tautology. <laughs> um, but seriously, though, one of the things you run into with Steel Sabotage is the, the challenge of deploying your proactive things and still holding up the one mana, which because of Thorns is frequently two mana. Uh, and this makes that problem less so. If you can get Barrel down, then Steel Sabotage just become, an, become a, a much better magic card. Much, yeah. So that's an interesting combination. But but you still can't shake the notion that post-sideboard, you're only going to have six, seven maybe relevant counterspells against a workshop deck. I mean, you're not, you just can't expect to get this loot ability to happen very much. Conversely, though, your mental missteps become amazing, as you, as you alluded to in the blue matchups. Imagine yeah. how much more no, uh, attractive it's interesting, it's interesting mental misstepping a probe is. Well, without without assessing how good this card is going to be, the reason it's attractive is because it's useful in multiple matchups here, is I think what you're getting at, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's such an incremental value to want to sink two mana into when there's such an, a powerful comparison in Jace Friend's Prodigy and also Snapcaster Mage, right? There's no denying that making all the spells cheaper and all the looting in the world still doesn't add up to card advantage <laughs> when Snapcaster Mage just gets you another mental misstep or another Swords to Plowshares. So it, it's crowded territory at 1U in the blue decks right now. I already can't afford to play with as many 1U <laughs> creatures as I want to. Ah, boy, I don't know. It's tough. 1-3 is a nice body. Interacts profitably with Phyrexian Revoker in a, in a way that's better than Snapcaster does. Well, except for the Plash. Darn it. It's not susceptible to Revoker, which is nice. That's a problem that JVP has. So I guess what we're saying is this card is really good against Phyrexian Revoker. <laughs> but, and it's actually better than well, JVP and Snapcaster against the... It's 1-3 on, against uh, Thals and things like that as well. It also makes it hard for... Like you were just saying, it makes it hard for Walking Ballista to really kill it. I think it's fine. Yeah. No, it's... I mean, it's 1-3 it's, is, it's is, is a good power and toughness for Vintage right now. Yeah. I'm not... I'm and not if a, you're really brave, down it blocks on this <laughs> I'm not down on this many stretch of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i think it's i think it is a playable vintage card i just think it's not like walking ballisto where it it is obviously an upgrade from some existing things and it fits really well this is an incremental kind of thing 
that might be situationally better than a Snapcaster in certain matchups in certain games. Might be situationally better than JVP even in some games. Sometimes the fact that this yeah. uh, tacitly produces mana is going to be the thing that you need, right? How many how many two land hands have you kept where they play double thorn and you just never get there? Oh, also this has more synergy with young pyromancer and mentor just inherently, I think, because you can deploy more spells against thorns. I mean, <laughs> Boy, I don't know. It's tricky. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to find room in a blue white mentor deck to to play this card in addition to all the other things I want to play already. I see, uh... One thing I don't know is how it functions with Mind Break Trap. Whenever a spell or ability you control counters a spell... Oh, it doesn't interact with Mind Break Trap because you don't counter them, you exile them. That's unfortunate, because otherwise you could draw multiple cards. Not, or you could loot multiple cards. Oh my word. This is insane with Flusterstorm Mirrors. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> because you could just pay for all... Wait, can you do that? No, no, the point is, is when you're... When your Flusterstorm is countering their Flusterstorm, you loot oh for every one. Oh my god, you could cycle through your entire deck. That is unbelievable. <laughs> well, yeah. let's not go crazy, but, but you know, the average Flusterstorm mirror is, the median is probably four right. spells, right? Give or take. And it get, the, whoever's winning that fight the, makes the median about five. Okay, the me median of five is probably <laughs> overstating it. But you don't put Flusterstorm on the stack usually until it's the third or fourth spell. Anyway, that's pretty epic. If you win a Flusterstorm fight and you get to loot four times, yeah, that's fun. Seems insane. Wow, that's really how interesting. interesting. Boy, that just because that one interaction right copies. there may have just... Is that, those, are, those copies are considered yeah. spells? They are spells, absolutely. Copies, yeah. The difference is with the copies is you're not casting them, but this, this card doesn't rely on you casting right. it. It just says whenever a right. spell or ability you control gotcha. counters a spell. Yeah. Wow, that's, that Flusterstorm interaction is, is awesome. Oh, also, this interacts with um, Chalice of the Void. Oh, nice. And any other yeah. permanent that says counter, like like uh, Nether Void, for <laughs> example. This would trigger on Nether Void. That's not one that we see in Vintage, yeah. but... <laughs> no, it's not. I don't know. I think this is right on the cusp of playability, and every once in a while it's going to be just the right card and provide you a ton of value, and then... I think it's playable. I just... I just... I just don't see people playing it. I think that yeah. the, the metagame is a bit too homogenous for this kind of card to see play. But if it does, I could really see it doing well. I tell you what, I'm going to go with non-zero. I'm going to go with one. I, I'm sadly going to go zero, but I think in a different environment, this right. can see some play. Let's move on to Tezzeret, the Schemer. Two, U, B, Planeswalker, Tezzeret. Okay, time for, time for a Planeswalker reading. Plus one... I love this plus one ability. The, to the tokens that are in this set for this ability are, are great. Create a colorless artifact token named Ethereum Cell with, quote, tap, sacrifice this artifact, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. That's the end of that ability. Minus two. Target creature gets plus X minus X until end of turn, where X is the number of artifacts you control. And minus seven... You get an emblem with at the beginning of your of combat on your turn, target artifact you control becomes an artifact creature with base power and toughness five five, and his starting loyalty is five. This is a really interesting planeswalker. Tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, tell me what you're thinking about. Now this. we already have. We there's a lot of tesserets. We already have. I know we already have multiple tesserets, and we already have one for this exact right. mana cost. Uh, the agent of Bolas has seen some vintage play, although not much in quite a while. 
So what are we talking about here? We're talking about five loyalty and his plus creates a Lotus Petal. That's not that great, right? It's, uh, it's yes, you could immediately use that, that Lotus Petal to fire off another spell, maybe a Cobble Therapy or a Flusterstorm or a Swords to Plowshare. So he protects himself a little bit in that sense, giving you playable options after you've put four mana into him. But that's not that exciting. The minus ability, though, is pretty good removal. Plus X, minus X for X is the number of artifacts you control. It can reliably be two to four artifacts. So you can talk about killing a um, one most of the smaller workshop creatures. And Eldrazi will be a little trickier. But obviously you can put yourselves in play situations where this will kill a Thought Not Seer or a Reality Smasher potentially. And uh, the good news is, is it won't trigger Reality Smasher's triggered ability. But the the ultimate is we, we frequently don't discuss ultimates that much because they're really not the point of planeswalkers. This ultimate is only okay, but it does allow you to finish the game. And once you've rent control from your opponent. So what I I guess what I'm getting at is that this Tezzeret can go up to six the turn you play it, give you some mana to work with, potentially defend yourself or or him. Then he's at six loyalty, he can use ah. his minus ability three turns in a row to kill creatures. That's unusual. That's that's a noteworthy feature of any planeswalker. Most planeswalkers can't use their defensive minus ability three times in a row, you know, after one plus. Okay, so what if you don't even need the plus? You play them as four mana removal, assuming you've got two or three moxen. Right. That's against a lot of vintage creatures. That's removal, right? Uh, three moxen, and you're gonna be able to probably take down a mentor. Sometimes you won't, but probably. Uh, and with three moxen, you're gonna be able to take down, as I said. Most of the two mana or three mana Eldrazi are workshop creatures, although Thought Not Seer becomes an issue. But that's also a deck construction consideration. Such a deck is going to be higher in Moxen. I just think that this is borderline in terms of the way he's able to remove creatures. None of the prior Tezzerets could remove creatures like this. In fact, we don't have a blue-black Planeswalker. Well, I mean, we don't have a blue Planeswalker, really, that is this good at removing creatures. So his upsides... Yeah, exactly. But his plus ability doesn't provide any card advantage, which is, he doesn't have a good card advantage ability, which is really sad. But it's also worth noting that his plus ability feeds his minus ability, right? Assuming you don't use the, the Lotus Petal, that's an extra artifact for the minus ability the next turn. So, I mean, you could get to a point where you become quasi-impenetrable to things that, aren't, things that are everything except Reality Smasher, right? You get do you get three artifacts, four artifacts in play? Use the plus ability, you've got five artifacts in play. There really isn't a vintage creature that can get through him after that. Yeah, part of the problem, though, is the wide. Oh, I guess, yeah, the wide, the wide problem, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, so you're going to have to have an, an, a, you know, an answer for Mentor, but you're not playing blue-black and vintage today without an answer to Mentor, so kind of goes without saying. But you're right. I mean, this no, even this ability, which is reliably good, is not that good. But this will kill a mentor, right? You get you get three moxen into play. This is gonna kill a mentor. Not every time, but a lot of the time. You get that fourth one down. They're not they're not gonna be able to save their mentor. Play this, and you play Dread of Night or Illness in the Ranks, or Engineered Plague, or you know any one of those four black enchantments that are good at well, dealing with mentor. But where is this going to see play though? Assuming it it has a use in the format, where is it going to appear? Yeah, well that's the question, right? There isn't a straight blue black in the deck in the format right now. Um, you're incentivized to be playing Moxon, so I'm suggesting that maybe this is good friends with Duretti, Ingenious Iconoclast, in a Grixis shell. 
a high high mox Grixis shell with Key Vault and Tinker and Thirst for Knowledge. I think this is a reasonable home there. You could, if it's Grixis, you could make a, a real case for Duretti actually being better than this Tezzeret, though, in that exact context, because that Duretti is pretty aggressive. So that's kind of an issue. And there's always the omnipresent comparison to Jace the Mind Sculptor. This Tezzeret does not get you card advantage anywhere nearly as well as that Jace will. But Jace is worse in an environment filled with creatures, right? I don't know. I think this is borderline. I think that the, uh, Grixis aficionados out there who really love their their seven solo moxin in their control decks are, are going to be interested in this. But I don't think it's I don't think it's blowing the doors off of anything. You know, it's it's comparable, I think, in utility to the latest Chandra because he's so good at killing creatures. He's better than almost any planeswalker at killing creatures. You sound unconvinced. It sounds like you're sitting on zero. Uh, I think so. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm 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 vacillating between zero and one, but I think the thing that's going to push me to zero is that how unpopular Grixis has been lately. <laughs> I mean, it's just been colossally unpopular of late, and I think this is playable in that shell, but that deck is so far depressed right now that I don't think we're going to see it. So I'll go me zero. Neither. It'll yep. be fun to see if I'm wrong. Next is Inspiring Statuary for three. Artifact. Non-artifact spells you cast have Improvise. That's it. Non-artifact <laughs> spells you cast have Improvise. Six words. Remind me what, imp- what remind everyone what Improvise is. Yeah. The, the reminder text for Improvise is, your artifacts can help you cast those spells. <laughs> Which is hilariously <laughs> informal. Each artifact you tap after you've done activating mana abilities pays for one generic mana. So it's just like Convoke in that you can tap this Inspiring Statuary to pay for the generic mana in, say, Time Walk. You could tap this in an island to cast Time Walk. Very critically important that it says non-artifact. If they hadn't included the non-artifact clause, this card would be completely ridiculous in workshops. But fortunately, we do not live in that world. I I don't want to even visit that world. (laughs) I would be playing workshops if this card didn't say (laughs) non-artifact. Um, anyway, so what does this do? This yeah. is kind of like a three mana uh, mana battery of sorts. Not mana battery is a terrible word. Mana rock. Um, because you, as soon as it comes into play, you can use it to improvise a spell. So, But that's not that exciting. We have a million much better mana producers than that. What does this really do, I think? This produces mana through a null rod. Ah. So when you have this and null rod in play, all of your moxen are back online, basically. And so is Null Rod, and so is this card, right? This plus a Mox plus a Null Rod means you've got three mana. Granted, it, it only taps for colorless, effectively. And not even colorless, it only taps for generic. <laughs> but that's still something, right? Yeah. You're back in business when your opponent is not. So I think this has a relevant interaction in Vintage with Null Rod and Stony Silence. It's better, actually, with Null Rod. But I don't think that's enough. You know, the Null Rod decks aren't clamoring to be able to cast their spells through their own null rods that's not really a a thing but the the interaction is relevant so i thought i'd mention it unfortunately the workshop decks can't really board this in to fight their opponents null rods that just doesn't work (laughs) as funny as that might be so picture that this is uh, this is kind of out there right but picture you're playing paradoxical storm storm and your opponent plays null rod but you somehow magically got this into play don't ask me how but you did now, all you need to cast Paradoxical Outcome is one blue mana. You just pay blue, and then 
inspire it with your three mocks and that don't have any activated abilities. And it's kind of like you're still just casting Paradoxical Outcome. Is that good enough? I don't think so. Nope. I think you're better off having just spent the one mana to fragmentize their Null Rod <laughs> rather than play this exactly. three mana spell. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so that was a fun exercise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you, well, I mean, yeah, the the proposal you have in mind is to use this as a way around <laughs> paradoxical around null rod. I just, <laughs> I think, I, I need yeah, more. Applications. I think we should take a moment and talk about improvise in vintage. <laughs> okay. Because I think some people from the outside looking in that aren't frequent vintage players might think, well, that's got to be at its best in vintage, right? You've got all the you've got all the artifacts. You just your decks are filled with artifacts. Well, not really, right? So if you're playing a non-workshop deck, most of the artifacts in your deck already produce mana. So this card is not getting you anywhere. And the couple artifacts that we play in those blue kinds of decks that don't produce mana are frequently things like Time Vault, which has no real profitable interaction with this. Granted, this card is really good with Sensei's Divining Top, and I I would enjoy that particular interaction, right? It makes the Sensei's Divining Top even that more ridiculous of a card. But that's minor. So, you know, top is is not very frequently played in Vintage right now. Even in even though I love it and put it in all my mentor decks, most people don't. <laughs> there just aren't that many non-mana-producing artifacts that are just sitting around to tap to improvise spells. There just really aren't. Null Rod and Top, yeah. they're, the, they're the top of the list, and the list diminishes quickly it's thereafter. Quickly after yeah. that. You know, if there were a lot of Winter Orb decks in Vintage, now we'd be talking... Because the interaction with this and Winter Orb is hilarious. <laughs> That's right. But we're not there. If you could play this in old school, it would be really funny, I think. Because tapping a Winter Orb to improvise and end step disenchant <laughs> is pretty sweet. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go with zero. But I think we should look out for future interactions with this card. Agreed. Next, Spire of Industry. Land. Tap. Add C to your mana pool. Tap. Pay one life. Add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Activate this ability only if you control an artifact. You know, it, you made a funny point during one of our recent shows about how you could never have predicted that Pain Lands would be playable in Vintage. Right. The <laughs> this, Ice Age Pain Lands. This is, a five, this is a three to five color Pain Land, is what it is, effectively. Because, and the reason I say that is because if you were playing a two color deck, then this card is just inferior to whatever Pain Land goes in those two colors. As soon as you're playing three or more colors, then this becomes, this has upside over just a regular pain land or a city of brass or a mana confluence. But you have to be playing the sort of deck that reliably has an artifact in play. There aren't a lot of decks that fall into that category right now in Vintage, but over its history there have been. Aforementioned Grixis would be a good example. Yeah. I think the best example in modern Vintage right now is, humorously, Two Card Monty. No, I think that's, um, yeah, that's a good point. So what would you cut? What would you? What, I mean, those decks just play like City of Brass. This would just be better. I think you can't. I think you can't put fully four of these yeah. in, but I think you start in the two to three range, and yeah, you, you'd like to cut Cities of Brass, but maybe you do a combination because, like, the Ben Perry lists run four cities and four gemstone mines, and I think you could shave some of both of those and get a little bit more reliability and save yourself some life. So I think this is a playable land, but there just aren't that many three or more color artifact heavy decks in vintage right now. But we the pendulum could swing back. I'm going I'm definitely going non-zero on this because I won't be surprised if specifically Ben Perry <laughs> plays this card next month. <laughs> no, I 
I agree with you. I think this is real. <laughs> this is a really interesting design. I mean, I like what they've done. Here. I, I, so I, I'm with you. To, to bolster that um, point a little bit, though, I don't think this card is playable in like Reed Duke's Paradoxical Storm deck, right? That kind of deck, even though it is technically three colors and high artifacts, you just you just don't need this kind of diversity of mana in a deck like his. Maybe if there was a four color Steel City Vault type list. Maybe that kind of deck would enjoy one of these or two of these. Yeah, I, I think th- I think this card is definitely playable, to your point. It's just a matter of figuring out exactly where to play it, which is what you're searching for yeah. right now. It doesn't go in Rodrigo Tagore's four-color Snapcaster Leovold deck because that deck doesn't have enough artifacts. Yeah, you need to have a critical mass of artifacts. There's no question. Yeah, I, I think it's... I mean, it's, a great, it's a great card. I mean, it's a really good card. Um, you might be able to play it in the combo deck, like the, like the um, Burning Oath decks that have just like, you know, multiple and Chrome Mox and all that stuff. I'm just not right. sure. I'm just not convinced it would be actually better than, um, yeah. I, mana Confluence? Yeah, than Mana Confluence, just because of the, the 4% of situations where you don't actually have the artifact, you know, <laughs> or you want to hold <laughs> it for Storm. Oh, yeah. Well, and you're going to get doubled up, really feel bad hands with uh, Opals in this every once in a while. Great. Yeah. Well, actually, that's you could still just play an opal and turn this on, but you're still gonna feel bad by not being able to get mana off your opal, and this and then this highlights the situation. Yes, it does. I I don't know. I I I think this is non-zero, but I think it's a a very vanishingly low number at this point in the metagame. But keep an eye on it because if this is even remotely playable, then vintage players are gonna want to get some for the long term. <laughs> so I'm gonna go with one. Oh, yeah, I mean, this is a card I would encourage. If you're listening and you're trying to figure out, based upon the set review, whether you should pick them up, I think you should pick them up. I'll pick them up. Um, yeah, I think that's I just fair. think it's really hard to predict where it'll fit. You, do you think this opens up workshops to um, colored, colored uh, spells again? With Cavern? I, I don't with know. Cavern. I, don't think, uh, I don't think this land really opens that door any more so than, yeah, like Cavern did or... or I don't know what's the, what's the one colored mana spell you you've really been burning to play in your workshop decks. <laughs> Goblin Holder. <laughs> yeah, well, so we were already there yeah, with but, Cavern. Yeah, but maybe this right? maybe not. Maybe Cavern actually gives you the additional oomph. Oh, I see your point. Maybe this yeah. plus Cavern is what you're saying. Uh, the problem yeah, is that I, the, the problem well, is that workshop I, decks just they need really good lands like soul lands, you know, or Eldrazi like yeah. Ancient Tomb or Eldrazi Temple. You can't really put this yeah. But at, Actually, after last Friday, the problem is walking ballista. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Goblin Welder just even became worse. even less of a playable I'll take magic two. card. I'll take the over. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. You're on too. Next is Fatal Push. Woot woot. Or B, instant. Destroy target creature if it has converted mana cost two or less. Revolt. Destroy that creature if it has converted mana cost four or less. Instead... If a permanent you controlled left the battlefield this turn, well, this card has people crazy excited in in many formats, right? This is a pretty good black removal oh, spell. Yes, except that you've already said on the VSL you are very down on this card. So why don't you start? <laughs> yeah, I'm down on this card as it pertains to the current metagame, and I think that the pivot point for that, a good example of that, is Rodrigo's four color Leovold deck where he splashed white specifically for swords to plowshares. Do you think his deck could cut white and play this over swords? 
I think it's borderline. It's very close. But his deck is a rarity in the broader format right now, right? The format right now is heavily uh, workshops or colorless decks or colorless decks splashing white or blue-white or blue-white-red, right? And then after that, it's combo decks and things that don't play removal. The, the format is very consolidated at the moment. There's a lot of variance in Mentor. There's a lot of variance in Shops and Eldrazi. None of those decks are going to play Fatal Push, though. So I think the metagame is against this card, even though this is a playable vintage card. The card has plenty of targets, and Revolt is pretty reliable to get with a properly constructed vintage mana base. And destroying creatures that cost two or less is nice. There are plenty of targets. Ravager, Small Ballistas, Small Hangerback Walkers, Revoker, Thalia... Snapcaster, Jace, Friends, Prodigy, there are plenty of targets. And as soon as you get up to Revolt, you can kill nearly <laughs> everything else that's relevant in Vintage. You can kill Mentor and the, the bigger workshop creatures, Lodestone, Thought uh, thought Not. You can't kill Reality Smasher, though. That's true. No, and that's that true. one exception in terms of heavily played Yeah, Vintage Reality Smasher is, is this format's juice of gin. It's, it's really insane. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to point out, though, that this card has a funny interaction with your own Mentors because it functions like um, functions like Pyroblast. You can just Fatal oh. Push your Mentor. And it doesn't kill it. And without Revolt, it won't die. Yeah. Now you have to watch response. out for your opponent oh, killing something in response. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is hilarious. Because if they have Fatal Push, they can Fatal Push oh, one God. of your monks in response. In fact, they can Fatal Push the monk that your Fatal Push created. <laughs> and then your yeah. mentor will die. But the odds of that situation coming up are, are slim. The, my point of that out is just because this spell only says target creature and it only destroys the creature if the mana cost considerations are met. So you can fatal push a, a Blightsteel Colossus. You can, in fact, you can fatal push a, a, a Reality Smasher if you want. <laughs> and you can even discard a card to its trigger if you feel like it. But it's just not going to destroy the Reality Smasher either way. So I... I know when I was on VSL and Randy and I were talking about this, I said, just no. Yeah. I said, basically, <laughs> just no. But that's an oversimplification. I think this is a vintage playable card. I think you could and would put it into bug yes. decks. Yes, I agree. It goes I in agree. bug decks. You're looking no for good removal that. that doesn't cost a and half at, your life, like snuff yeah. out a dismember. <laughs> right, right. So it goes in those decks. But those or, decks or are four very, color. I mean, you can put this into a label deck, right, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you totally could. You totally could. So I don't mean to say we're never going to see this. I just mean to say it's very, very slight its impact on the format right now. Do you? So you don't think there's going to be any in the top eights in the near future, in the next couple of months? None, zero. I don't know. I could no. I could be convinced to go greater than zero. I could be convinced to even go two or three. I mean, I, I think it's a playable vintage card. I just don't think it's very good right now, and it doesn't make those decks good either, right? You got to keep in mind, one of the most damning things about this card is you need Revolt to kill a Mentor. How many times are you going to be stuck with you had to fetch it in order to play your spell the turn before, and you're sitting there with an Underground Sea untapped, and they just go Monastery Mentor, and you look at your Fatal Push and say, yeah. And they say, gush, and you go, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they replay, and they play a Mox in the top, and you just look at that Fatal Push. You couldn't get Revolt. You say, on, on my next turn, that Mentor's dead, but right now I don't have Revolt. That's true. Monastery Mentor pushes this card really hard. It's, it's, it's bad. It's really bad how, how much uh, Mentor punishes this card. It's playable. I think it's playable. It's just not going to be very and good. I think it's a little bit better than you're giving it credit for, although I do think yeah. you've correctly identified 
where it will appear <laughs> and, under, and under what circumstances. Well, I mean, it's also it's also not great against uh, workshops. Yeah, even though it has plenty true. of targets. Like you'd rather just have this is, member or something is against shops. Sadly, very easy to get against shops. Yeah, you. I mean, when they play Thought Not Seer, were you lucky enough to be sitting there with an, an untapped fetch land? Because that's what you need, and you need mana to pay for whatever thorns are in play. Well, I do think that's the fact that reliable. this can kill a Thought Not Seer if you set it up. I think I don't think it's entirely reliable, but I don't think it's unreasonable either. No, I would. I don't want to say it's unreasonable. It's just unreliable. That's all. And not being able to kill Reality Smasher is huge, right? I mean, look at your match against Andy Probasco in the play-in, right? He was just <laughs> clamoring for ways to deal with your creatures, and you don't want that's to pull these up. That's true. That is the card's big Reality Smasher. That's the card's big weakness. I'll grant you that. That's just a disaster. 100%. Yeah. All right. Well, so I'm I'm comfortable going non-zero. I know players yeah. will try it out. I know Leovold players think, will be excited yeah, I, for I, it. It's not going to be a four of. I but think this is like a five you know, and under two category. copies. There's going to be a couple that appear, like two or three. That's what, yeah. I'm, that's what I was going yeah. to take. I'll, I'll go take, with two. I'll pick three then. That's it's going out in a limb. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, similar to the spire of industry, I think it's it's worth saying to people who are just interested in picking up the vintage playables that this is vintage playable, and at some future yeah. point, it might get a lot better. If blue-black, for example, becomes the more predominant control color for some reason, due to bannings or printings or whatever, this card does get a lot better. Next is Reverse Engineer for 3UU. Sorcery. Improvise. Draw three cards. I like the, <laughs> the verbiage efficiency on these cards in this set. So what do we have here? We have a 5-mana Ancestral at Sorcery Speed. We have a 5-mana Concentrate. That could be two mana, assuming you had some non-Mox artifacts lying around. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk about Inspiring Statuary vis-a-vis -vis Improvise earlier, because I just, I mean, what three artifacts do you have in play in Vintage that you're tapping for this that aren't Moxen? Okay, you've got your Sensei's Divining Top, that's fine. Maybe you've got a Voltaic Key that you didn't have anything else to do with right at the moment, <laughs> even though you also have top in play. It's very irresponsible of you. Uh, or maybe you've got a Null Rod in two Moxen that weren't doing anything. Okay, that's a reasonable case, I suppose. Maybe you're playing Merfolk, and you've got Aether Vial and Null Rod in play because you really wanted that combo. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm grasping at straws here. I think, this, I think this card is more playable in other formats than it is in Vintage, but only barely. I, I'm skeptical of that as well. But I but I'll I'll go with you I'll go with you on that. <laughs> other other formats have more artifacts that aren't Moxen though, right? Did, did one of our so did that. one of our Twitter followers suggest this card? Because I I would not have. Yes. Okay. Did they did they elaborate yes. on their suggestion or was it just offered without comment? No, offered without comment. I do think it's relevant though from a vintage historicals perspective to at least comment sure. on all the ancestral variants. That Happy they come to up do with. so. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I genuinely don't think that this card is playable. And if it was, I actually think that other improvised cards might actually be better than this one. But that's I'm splitting hairs now. I'm going to go with zero. Me as well. That brings us to Scrap Trawler. For three, Artifact Creature Construct. Whenever Scrap Trawler or another artifact you control is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, return to your hand, target artifact card in your graveyard, with lesser 
converted mana cost. 3-2. So let me get this straight. You have Arcbound Ravager in, your, in play, and you play this Scrap Trawler, and you sack Arcbound Ravager to itself. This is making me laugh. For some reason. Yeah. <laughs> you can return a 0 or a 1 from your graveyard to your hand. Okay, so let me back up. That was bad sequencing. So you have this in Ravager and a Mox. You sacrifice the Mox, and this triggers, but you would have to have a card with converted mana cost of negative <laughs> 1 to return to your hand. So you can't return anything. But then you sack the Ravager, and you can return the Mox to your hand. Re replay that scenario one more time. I want to make sure I follow that. So you've said you've got a Mox and what? And, and this Scrap okay. Trawler and yeah. an Arcbound Ravager. Got it. If you sack the Ravager to the Mox, this will trigger. To the Mox. You, you mean sack the Mox to the Ravager. Um, to, yeah. no, sack yeah. the Mox to the Ravager. Thank you. This will trigger, but you won't be able to return anything because there it's isn't any magic in the graveyard. There has to be something yeah, in there a, simultaneously. Well, uh, no, it has to also cost less than the Mox you just sacrificed. That's the thing. Right. Yeah. No, if this didn't have the cost re restriction, you could infinitely sack Mox into Arcbound Ravager. Because <laughs> the artifact is in the graveyard as part of the cost of the activation of the Ravager. But because zero is the lowest number you can have for a converted mana cost, you can't return anything when you sack a mox. But if you sack Ravager with Scrap Trawler, Scrap Trawler in play, then you could return a mox to your hand because it costs less than the two of the Ravager. So the net effect would be getting two power on the Ravager, functionally? Two more power than it otherwise would have had? Uh, no, you just one more, one actually, more. because you only get a card back for the Ravager in this context. That doesn't seem very attractive. No. The fact that this makes some interesting loops with Ravager would probably be better in a deck. So if you that had, had two Ravagers, you could go costs. infinite. Sorry, I didn't interrupt, but it just occurred to me, right? N no, because you can't get one Ravager back from the other because it doesn't cost less. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. You right. can only ever go down in mana right. costs. They've cut out but infinite if you loops. Yeah, if you had a variety of mana costs, if you had Moxin and something that costs one, like Animation Module, and then some twos and threes. You could kind of daisy chain together. You could sack a three and get back a two, and sack a two and get back a one, sack a one and get back a zero, right? You could daisy chain for some value if you had diverse mana costs. So let's say you've got Mox, Ravager, Animation Module, and Scrap Trawler in play. Those four that cost zero, one, two, and three, <laughs> respectively. Okay. <laughs> you sack the Mox to the Ravager, right? Then you sack the Animation Module to the Ravager and get back the Mox. Okay. You replay the Mox. So now you have Mox, Ravager, yeah. and Scrap Trawler. Yeah. Then you sack, sack the Mox back. Ravager to, to put a counter on something. And no, then you get the animation module back. Why wouldn't you sacrifice the <laughs> Mox to the Ravager first? And then you get the animation. Well, just because you oh. want to start at the lowest oh, end sorry. of the chain. I'm sorry. I got it. I got it. Right. Yeah. So that when you sack a one, you this can get a confusing. zero. <laughs> yeah. It's confusing. Yeah. Point is, is that this plus Ravager plus some diversity in mana costs means you can get a fair number of more counters. But not that many no. more, and you can't go infinite. Yeah. yeah. So I think you're better off in any kind of vintage context with, um, with just a more efficient creature like a Walking Ballista or any of the number of ones that we've already discussed. It's a neat value engine, though, I suppose. But Well, hold on. Let's talk about um, Smokestack, right? This helps you maintain a Smokestack for considerably longer. You sack a Mox the first time. Well, you'd have to have a, an artifact you wanted to sack that costs between 1 and 3. But if you had a superfluous Null Rod or an extra Sphere that you didn't need, you could sack the Sphere and it would give you back the Mox that you sacked. So, but Crucible of Worlds is already doing that job far better and with better ancillary effect than this is in workshops. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think this value engine is worth it. 
Is there some other corner case or other deck that would use this? No, I don't think so. Because you can't get profitable returns off of a Black Lotus just by sacking the Lotus. I mean, yeah. you can't get anything back. Well, Steve, that brings us to the end of our Ether Revolt list. How would you how, well, we how do, would you wrap it up? I mean, how would you describe the set overall? It's another artifact-themed set, so we get some very interesting artifact interactions. But as a whole, this set doesn't have nearly as much for Vintage as Kaladesh does. It has one immediately hugely impactful card yep. in Walking Ballista, and then it has a number of marginal, Mar- possibly speculative <laughs> cards. Yeah. I mean, we, we both acknowledge that Hope of Giripur is a really fun and powerful and diversely impactful card, but the metagame is stacked against yeah, it a little bit right now. And then beyond that, the highest prediction either of us made was a, a three on Fatal Push. So this set is not nearly as pa- impactful or filled with goodies as Kaladesh. Interesting also that we only reviewed Artifact, Blue, and Black <laughs> cards. Plus the Spire of Industry. <laughs> There's just not a single Naya card that anyone brought to our or attention that, lo- that looked like it was even remotely playable. Yeah, hopefully. It'd be funny to see if I eat those words, but yeah, I, 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 that's, that's where we're at right now. We want to cover a few other things, though, before we wrap up this show. One of the things that we thought was deserved a little bit more than just a regular announcement is a VSL update. Most of our listeners probably know, but for those of you who don't, we just completed the the latest play-in tournament for the VSL, and we had three slots available going into the event, a number of great players, myself and Steve included, but the new participants in this season of VSL are Rachel Agnes, Rodrigo Togores and Oliver too. Congratulations to the three of them. Definitely, Steve, you put up an an epic <laughs> uh, performance at the at the last bit of the double limb at the end there, and you came up just short. For those who weren't watching, Steve, what did you did you go four and one on yeah. the last day? Is that <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, that's that's a good record, right? It was pretty. It was pretty exhausting, but it was fun. I want to <laughs> yeah. hear. And you came up just yeah. short of. Of in the in the last bit of the double limb bracket, there. I thought I thought folks would be very interested to hear your thoughts on the on the VSL. Like, what was the experience like for you? They've heard me talk about it a lot. To talk about like your reflections on it, your deck choice, because we didn't we haven't really recorded yeah. since you've got a chance to talk about it. I was hesitant to accept a place in the play-in tournament for the VSL primarily because of Magic Online, because of my lack of experience with it. Uh, and I'm glad that I took the opportunity up, partially because it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing, but also because then I got to practice with Magic Online and it wasn't nearly as bad as I had feared. My skills with it are still not up to snuff in terms of anyone who plays it with regularity, but I didn't lose to the program or quirks thereof in the play-in tournament. And that <laughs> counts as a win in my eyes, right? I got adept enough that I didn't time out and I didn't click through my turn or anything during any of the games. So pleased about that. And it's, it was enjoyable to be able to test Vintage online with not, without having to leave my house. The competition in the play-in tournament was solid. It was some, some, good, some good and interesting variety. I metagamed because I expected to face off against Mentor and Paradoxical yeah. Storm. We, we, both, we both knew heavily, at some point given we would the be playing Paradoxical Storm. 
<laughs> it was a guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And and just given the the history and our personality and our prior experience of, of all the competitors, we knew it was going to be heavily tilted toward blue. And we were right. So I played a deck I was quite comfortable with, my Remora Mentor deck. It's one that I like a lot, and I really enjoy it in the mirrors. And out of the whole event, which was a lot of games for me, I played against Mentor once. Yeah, unfortunately you didn't... Despite the fact that there were like five out of eight people playing Mentor. You didn't really get a chance to, to demonstrate the Remora, how, how yeah. good it can be, um, I think. A couple of times. Yeah. Like a couple of games, it was really good, but... But yeah, I ended up playing against the, the people who had metagamed away from Mentor. I played against Andy and his crazy main deck Sulfur Elemental White <laughs> Eldrazi list. And, uh, and then I played against your, admittedly, less metagamey uh, White Eldrazi list, but still with some, some nice tricks out of the sideboard via Mental Misstep. Yeah, so I ended up playing against the matchups that I was not as prepared for, and that was kind of a bummer. And also, I ended up playing against Reed twice, the first time on Mentor, and I could have won that match, but it was, it was very close. And then I got to play him again on Paradoxical Storm, and the Remora was good, but I think Reed's draws were what defeated him rather than me in our match, because I went back and watched it after the fact, and boy, his draws were miserable. So I did okay, but I did about as bad as you can do and still do okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, there was a really, really interesting turn one where you had like lotus and sensei's divining top and it was just a really complicated set of options it wasn't mm -hmm. obvious and you took some time to think about that i was curious if you had any reflections on what your decision tree was there well i thought which game was that against reed because i think it, i think it was the final game i think yeah, it was because i i already knew what he was on so i knew that my first turn had to um it had to be very well thought because I could just die <laughs> on turn one if I wasn't careful. But what happened that game, I think, was I... Didn't I ponder into Lotus? I think that's what happened. I didn't have the Lotus in my opener. I think I played a cantrip and found Lotus. And then I had some other options in terms of do I play top and spin it and look for something? I, I'm sorry, I genuinely don't, genuinely don't remember what was in that hand. But I remember thinking yeah, I, I had to get my specifics. options online as soon as possible. Well, you had a meddling mage, and there was a question oh, as yeah. to whether you should have played a meddling mage. It, it's and the commentators were saying, "Well, you go for the tendrils or whatever." I said, "Oh no, I think you hit the yeah. engine. Like you named paradoxical outcome." It, it, had I played meddling mage, I agree with you. I would have named paradoxical outcome. Yeah, the, the games against Reed are really interesting. I was really curious well, about overall, that. Overall, they yeah. demonstrated uh, one of the tricks of playing Remora against combo decks, and that is because. When Remora is doing its job, it's creating tension and time, right? Once you've started drawing a ton of cards off Remora, it's, it's, becomes, it's either the combo player has you beat, which was what happened to me in game two against Reed, or it's desperation. But in most of the middling spaces and cases, they're just trying to wait you out. And that's, that's one yeah. of the hardest things to do with Remora, <laughs> is know how long that's you're supposed what to hold it in play. That's exactly what I was trying to do against you, is, is you played Remora. I had a really explosive mm -hmm. hand, but your Remora really held me at bay. And because I just drew enough creatures, I was able to actually attack through it. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I remember specifically when I went back and rewatched because I played Remora against you in game two. No, no, no. It was game no, two. Game one. Well, well it was oh. game one, yeah. And you had, at your disposal, you had Ancient Tomb, a Mox, a Soul Ring, <laughs> and a Thorn of Amethyst, right? 
Yes, exactly. So, so you could have played, and you could have given me between one and three cards if you'd so chose with how you sequenced that. You chose to give <laughs> me zero, which worked out in, in the long run, and frequently it will. But you're right, that's, an, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, is Remora is creating tension between you and your opponent about will, will they or won't they, and <laughs> how long do you keep it in play. <laughs> and going back to game two against Reed, the game I lost in our three-game set, I had Remora in play for ages, but for three or four turns in a row, I had a hand that had Dig Through Time and Meddling Mage in it, but I was floating just one untapped land every turn, thanks to Remora. And so I was perpetually faced with this notion of, is this the turn that I play Meddling Mage? Or is this the turn that I let the Remora go and dig through time and try and set something else up? And I think I, I held it just one turn too long. But hey, that's, I mean, you live by the fish and die by the fish, I guess. <laughs> I, did, I didn't yep. sign up to not have difficult decisions. <laughs> yeah, it, the VSL always presents, I think, more difficult choices than you typically encounter in any other regular testing it's just it's just yeah. the nature of the beast <laughs> well to, to follow up on your the rest the other half of your question though i really enjoyed the experience of the play in tournament i enjoy and all the people are great of yeah course. it was it was really fun yeah. to watch you i mean it was, a lot of it, was fun. it was fun from my perspective to watch you you know because yeah. we've been friends for so long and it was cool to see the i think abroad i mean we have a big audience but it was also cool to see a different part of the metagame get to enjoy watching you and hearing you i really like that so that was really cool and I enjoyed commentary far more than I thought I would, honestly, which might sound silly, especially speaking into this microphone right now, <laughs> but, but honestly, I was so focused on the play part of the event that the commentary was just, I was expecting, you know, that was just the, hey, I'll worry about that when it comes. I enjoyed it a lot. And there's no secret. I mean, you and I do this show and have for years because we enjoy blathering <laughs> on about vintage. So... I got to do so in real time and with some good players and good play, and it was fun. Yeah, and it was unfortunate we had to play twice, right. you know. But it was, I, you know, it was still there's still we saw interesting games, and you know. Yeah, and I think the I think the audience appreciated the fact that you and I got to play, had to play. <laughs> yeah, probably yeah. true. <laughs> it, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> I'll get you next time, I guess. <laughs> it would be nice to have a rematch with you in the VSL play <laughs> at some future point. <laughs> Well, cool. I want to... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I want to... Is there anything else on the VSL that you want to touch on? I don't think so. Just enjoyable experience. Yep. Yeah. I do want to address one reader mail since our last show. This one comes in from Martin Nielsen in Europe. He didn't say exactly where. He says, Hello, Stephen and Kevin. Thanks for continuing to produce such a wonderful vintage content. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead. He was very complimentary of the show. So I'm writing not only to sing your praises, but also because Eternal Weekend Europe is coming up in about two months, and I'm going to be heading there. As I still don't own full power, parentheses, I own Jet, Sapphire, Lotus, Recall, and Time Walk, basically what you need to play Doomsday, but not a lot more. <laughs> I'm going to get stuck with, in with Doomsday, trying to get as many matches on MTGO before the event. I am, however, still completely a rookie at Vintage compared to Legacy, which has been my bread and butter this past five years. I feel that I have a decent matchup versus Workshops, between my main deck and sideboard, but a matchup that really has me scratching my head is White Eldrazi. Huh. How the it's, heck are you supposed to put up a it's fight? It's a nightmare. There? It's it's. Okay, let me go ahead. Hold on, let me just finish because he makes some some points to your point. Cavern and Null's forces and Hercules Recall is not really the place to be versus Thalia and friends. 
how would you recommend that a blue-black combo control deck approaches this matchup? Should they be dabbling in stuff like Massacre? Yeah. Or are there other hosers They have more of an overlap with the rest of the Yeah, format? there's there's only really two options. You can either go transform the transformative sideboard plan, or you can just try and overload. If you overload, you're likely going to be going for things like um, things like Massacre to begin with. Although Massacre is you know not necessarily going to be your best answer, because what Eldrazi doesn't always have a planes <laughs> you can have a caracas or just not have one at all oh yeah exactly Corlos, yeah um I, I don't really think there's a, i don't have a good answer for you unfortunately i just think it's a really it's just a fundamentally bad matchup um and that's one of the reasons that i think yeah. you know doomsday has disappeared a little bit is because of uh dahlia dahlia is just much worse than anything else um i do think if you can right. navigate the field and get lucky against one tactic that actually is effective is trying to just combo out with a dark ritual forcing the first dahlia or fast bond but i I don't really have any other good suggestions unfortunately well i I totally agree with what you've said there and i just to put it more clear for our audience and anyone else who might be an aspiring doomsday player this is a problem that you and i encountered against white eldrazi with our paradoxical mentor deck and that is for any one thing they right. have, we have great right. answers. Fragmentize is right. a super answer to a thorn, and Swords to Plowshares is a super answer to Athalia. But yes. the problem you have is the lineup. If you draw Plow and they have Thorn, you're out of luck, and vice versa. There are very few good, efficient answers to Athalia and a Thorn that you can put in one card. And that's the problem with the, with a, a deck that just can't stomach a Thorn being in play, <laughs> like the Paradoxical Storm decks. The one card that I thought of that actually can do it, but it's not perfect, is ah. Engineered Explosives. Engineered Explosives is actually a great, I think, underappreciated card in Vintage because it comes in under Thorns. That is to say, you can cast it for two, even though there's a Thorn in play and you only have two mana. So watch out for that. The Engineered Explosives answers Thalia and Thorn both in one card, but it's obviously inherently weak to Null Rod. So if you run up against those uh, those dreaded Null Rod White Eldrazi lists, then Engine Explosives is also bad. But it's but one of the a, few cards thing to keep yeah, in mind. that could potentially. Yeah. And another thing that I might suggest is Dread of Night. <sighs> and I mentioned that yeah. just because it overlaps That's with true. Mentor. That's true. Right? That's not a bad so idea. So it's a decent cyborg card against Mentor, and it get, you get splash damage against Thalia. It's not a card that's going to hold a Mentor deck at bay. Let's just be clear about that. Yeah. But it might but be. It'll good. buy you time. It might be good enough against, um, I mean, it does take out all the Thalias, <laughs> and it weakens Eldrazi Displacer, and yeah. Yeah. I, I wish so I had better great. guidance. I just, I think. But it's okay. Yeah. We appreciate the questions and feedback. It's a. Yeah. Well, and I know specifically from social media that Doomsday is a, a Dark Horse popular vintage deck. There's a lot of people who are really attracted specifically to Doomsday, which I think is great. Doomsday <laughs> is way fun to play. And it's also the, a deck, well, that you know better than most, Steve, that really rewards experience. Yeah. Because you, you can study until you are blue in the face those doomsday piles, and then as soon as you, you shuffle it up in a tournament, you're going to be faced with a scenario you hadn't prepared for. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. It's what I think, I think the doomsday requires is praxis, which is active practice and intersected with theory, which means that you need to understand the theory, but you also actually need to practice mechanics. It's not enough to study the doomsday piles. You actually need to actually get practice with the physical and logistical mechanics of building the doomsday piles. 
which means and you need to understand why those piles exist the way they do right so you can synthesize new things on the fly in tournaments (laughs) yeah i mean one thing i recommend doing just to get efficient this is one of the final pages of my gush book in the uh, doomsday appendix is it's really useful to actually sit down and actually build with physical cards doomsday piles um and one way you can do this is it first it helps you do it more uh, faster so you're not slow playing but the other thing is um you know you you get a sense for how to pull out the key cards quickly i generally recommend that you pull out the just your first pass through your deck pull out black lotus um Ancestral Recall, and I think the card is la- the other card I recommend is Laboratory Maniac. Oh, sorry, it would be Ancestral. Yeah, Ancestral Lotus and Maniac. Just pull those out, and just put those down, usually. And then the next, the rest of the, you know, those are going to be in about 90% of your piles. Um, and the, you know, there's only about 10 other cards you would consider. So once you've got those, then you can just find the other ones pr- pr- fairly quickly and build your stack. So I actually can recommend just starting with kind of like two stacks in front of you. The first is the those first three cards, maybe a few more, and then you know it, you either have a gush in hand or you need to put a gush in the pile. But there's a and then you're almost done right at that point. So um, it's pretty easy to round it out. But that that actually gets you so you don't have to like fully through through all the cards, then pick up your library and then actually pull out the rest of the cards. If you actually sit down and do it, you'll understand what I'm saying. But you need to you can't sit there and, and <laughs> ponder your doomsday pile for a long time. And actually, the phys- having yeah. the physical cards there will actually help you better think through the engineering problem of, of how to order the cards in the Doomsday Library stack. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you really do want to use the cards to physically interact with yourself to better uh, build Doomsday piles. And if you're playing on Magic Online, then a whole different approach is required. And I recommend, of course, the infamous Notepad. <laughs> <laughs> Notepad.exe. So... Steve, I remember you played Doomsday in the in the play in the first the first leg of it. I remember specifically that you made a pile that had underground C in it, <laughs> so that you could fetch and thin. That's your right. I did that. I was. I, That's pretty rare. That is very rare. <laughs> but if you do have a fetch land, it does it is minus one card in your Doomsday pile. And the other reason I specifically did that in the VSL was because um, was because. Uh, Here's here's why. I knew I was going to be resolving Ancestral. But I also, the order of the final three cards, if I pulled, if I fetched out an Underground Sea, was actually irrelevant. Because I draw the top card with Ancestral, and then I fetch out the Underground Sea, it, the sequence of the remaining three cards doesn't matter. So only shuffle if that's the situation for you. <laughs> so it was a very, very rare situation. Yeah. Unfortunately, that game was embarrassing because I had like four counter spells in my hand, and I lost. Because my opponent had two swords to plowshares and three mental missteps, which of course I didn't know. <laughs> had I known yeah. that, I would have been able to very easily win that match. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. I threw a, I did make a mistake of throwing a, a force of will onto a misstep instead of his plow. I mean, I had the, I sculpted the perfect hand, but I had, I would have never, ever, ever anticipated my opponent having three, not only three missteps <laughs> and two plows, but no other counter magic, like no force or anything. Right. So. If I right. had just forced the two plows, then he can't interact with me, and I would easily win that game. But again, you know that's the it's <laughs> yeah, a difference between the odds were not yeah, with you there. It's the difference between I think watching the VSL and actually playing in it is that you know 
when you're watching it, you actually see what your opponents have in hand. But when you're playing in it and you don't know, it's a lot more difficult. So I'm sitting there, especially with White Eldrazi, and trying to figure out not just do I play Reality Smasher or Thought Not Seer, and what does that mean for Clock, and what does that mean for his hand and probability and cards I have to worry about, but I'm also, you know, but I'm making a much wider range of assessments and trying to plan for a much, much larger set of situations. So when you're watching it, you see like, oh, it's very clear, Steve, you should just do this. When you're playing it, you're planning <laughs> for a hundred things that aren't even real, right? So that's part that's right, part of the right. challenge in the VSL, <laughs> at least for me, <laughs> is that, you know, uh, I think the plays at least, I think the best representation of how I think through games in the VSL and to really understand why it takes me so long, is if you go back to Season 5 and watch my match against Brian Kelly, where I literally narrated everything I was thinking about. And, you know, if people had just been watching it, they probably would have been a little... Anyway, it would have been a different experience if they were just watching me as opposed to me actually narrating it. That wasn't an interesting uh, variation on VSL, (laughs) that that particular match where they asked you to, to stream and play that That was was fun it was just fun for you know just to have done that but um you know i think actually white eldrazi was pretty challenging to play i have to admit because this is a a nice little uh nightcap to put on this this uh podcast but you know with i played a lot of workshops and with workshops the main skill is sequencing sequencing your spells and to some extent sequencing the land drops you have a diversity of land drops but you don't have you have so much more diversity of land drops with white eldrazi and the the risks are greater with White Eldrazi. So, for example, the decision to lead with an Ancient Tomb or Eldrazi Temple forecloses other lines of play, right? Like, so you really have to think through the land sequencing. And because of Eldrazi Displacer, because Eldrazi Displacer creates so many more options, like, you actually have to consider not just how do I sequence these spells in my hand, but do I even play these spells, you know? And the interaction of the spells is so different because mm-hmm. it's not uniform. It's like if you play a Thalia, it makes a thorn cost more. If you play the thorn first, then you're slower on damage. If you play, you know what I mean? It's like if if you play Thalia and then Wing, Rin Wingmare, then th- then thorn costs four, and it gets it gets really crazy. It just gets really crazy. They're all different cards. The math is crazy. I thought that honestly, this I, I posted this on the Manadrain, but I think White Eldrazi might be one of the most difficult decks to play in this very narrow sense. There are a lot of decks in the format where finding the right line is very difficult. Like, I think one of the most impressive games I've ever seen in the VSL was when LSV, and and I think it was week four of season five, I was about to crush him with workshops, and he played a Desperation Vampiric Tutor for Dig Through Time and found, like, the White Mana Source and Balance, right? He needed to have two cards in order to not lose. And he found Balance and a White Mana Source. He found both. Like, that's an example of finding a hidden or invisible line, right? White Eldrazi, the lines are fairly visible to you. There may be some situations where the lines are obscure. But what's challenging about White Eldrazi is not finding the lines. It's actually identifying the optimal line among all of your options. I actually think that White Eldrazi may pose that in the hardest degree of any of the decks in Vintage. Where it's, it's you know, with Doomsday or with Gush, it's usually finding the best line. But among your options, selecting the best. Because the information you have is so imperfect. And they're pretty close calls. Like whether you play a Reality Smasher or a Thought Not Seer, is six of one, half does the other, but there's subtle differences, advantages, and disadvantages for each one. 
and they can actually be the difference between winning or losing. Or for example, do I attack a planeswalker or do I attack a, the player? Because a, play, a reality smasher off the top could mean they're dead if you attack the player, right? It's it's tough. It's tough. Sure. And not only that, but White Eldrazi gives you tons of options with Thought Not Seer and if people play Phyrexian Revoker. I mean, you have a wide range, which means you have a wide range for error. But it's not, again, it's not hidden or difficult lines or chain lines. It's just identifying the one optimal play among the 5, 6, 12 available plays. I think White Eldrazi make, makes that the most difficult. In that specific sense, is the most difficult to play. I deck I've play, seen to play in Vintage in a long time. Well, there are certainly plenty of examples of your commentated matches, not your commentation, not your commentary, but commentation on your matches that uh, was very interesting in terms of people talking through, well, what is Steve thinking here? <laughs> and calling out a lot of the specifics that you talked about. There was one particular Thought Not versus Reality Smasher that <laughs> just had a lot of implications. And the commentators picked up on it right away, and it was very interesting. Yeah, there's one where Randy said, I have no idea what the right play is. And neither did I. That's <laughs> right. why I was sitting there trying to figure it out. <laughs> right. Good. St- it was good stuff. And I neglected to mention earlier that this season of the VSL kicks off now that we've got the play-in done on February 7th, awesome. right after the Pro Tour finishes. going to enjoy watching it. It'll be, nice. It'll be nice to actually be enjoying it as a spectator because it's it's so stressful when you're actually playing in it. It'll just be fun to watch it. It'll just be a, a just pure fun. So. Indeed. So we'll close this episode with our normal set review question. What do you think is the most vintage playable card from Ether Revolt? And with that, thank you for listening to episode 62 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. This is not safe protection game! <laughs> <laughs>